VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, December the 5th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Fonce King is sitting in the producer's chair this morning. You'll be speaking with Fonce when you get on the phone. Give us a shout. Get in the queue. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So apparently all hands had a good time yesterday at the downtown St. John's Santa Claus Parade. There was a variety of parades held around the province, and I always get a kick out of it, but never should be surprised. The star of the show again this year is the Maple Leaf Big Stick Balloon. I mean, it's peak Newfoundland, right? So hopefully you enjoyed the parade. And just fair warning, we know the popularity of online shopping. There are a bunch of campaigns out there encouraging people to shop local, if at all possible, and the prices are competitive and the product is there that you want. But we fell victim over the weekend, maybe it happened Friday evening, to the Porch Pirate. Someone in the house had ordered something online, got to notice that it had been delivered, and lo and behold, gone. Went back to the company and they say, yes, absolutely, it has been delivered, and of course the Porch Pirate got us. So I don't know what anyone can do about it. You know, some people have the doorbell camera, the uh, yeah, the doorbell camera installed, what have you. I suppose as part of that looking out for your neighbor kind of stuff, when you see something delivered, I don't know, you really don't expect your neighbors to be coming around and taking in your product off of your, uh, your porch or your stoop. But it's out there and it's happening and people are patrolling the neighborhoods, whether they're checking the, to- the doors of your car to steal your change or your bag or your coat. They're looking at the steps too, so... Be aware of it. All right, let's get a wrap-up of the World Cup of Softball. So we mentioned it a variety of times last week, and Canada came up just a little bit short. Lost in the gold medal championship game 5-2 to Australia. But it now means Canada's won 13 medals at the World Cup of Softball, the most successful country ever. And we talked about the fact that there were six players representing Canada from this province, and that also includes two coaches, so eight people on the team from here. Massive congratulations to Sean and Ryan Boland, Sean Cleary, Jason Hill, Colin Walsh, Brad Ezekiel, and coaches John Hill and Les Howdy. Cleary was outstanding in the tournament. So he had an ERA of 1.54, and he was only one pitch from a perfect game when they defeated Cuba 2-0. So congratulations to all hands. Silver medal at the Worlds. Not too shabby. Sticking with the Worlds for a second. You know, modern soccer registration numbers are massive in this province. We know that soccer is quite popular here, and I think growing in popularity around the country, given the success of both the men's and the women's side. So you've got to figure, just based on heritage, there's got to be an awful lot of England fans around. And of course, England moved through, as does France. What a tasty matchup that is in the quarterfinal, England versus France. Anyway, a couple more here. Miss Clutch. Boston College standout Abby Newhook. What a weekend she had. So she scored the overtime winner on Friday night to give Boston College a victory. She scored again the next day. That's her 10th goal. She's got nine game-winning goals in about a season and a half at Boston College. Last year, she was second in the United States in game-winning goals. So she is flying again. So her ninth and 10th over the weekend, that included her 50th point as an eagle at Boston College. And I ran uh, ran into Dr. Sean Connors over the weekend. And, of course, his daughter Maggie has been a standout at Princeton. This is her senior year. She had a four-point night on Friday night, so obviously beaming with pride was Dr. Connors. And, you know, you got to believe somewhere down the line, Abby Nook is going to play for her country. She's going to make the senior women's side. You'd think so, right? Maggie Connors is in a tricky spot here. 
obviously super bright, going to graduate from Princeton. She's on the bubble for Team Canada. So what does she do to buckle down now that the Olympics are a couple of years away and she's got a real chance of being there or go right into the workforce, whatever the case may be. But good weekend for those two ladies in the NCAA. And sticking with female accomplishments here, Jada Lee. We all know this past summer she became the first female to pitch in the Canada Summer Games baseball competition. The games have been around since 1967. Now, curiously, the women, females, will have a baseball event in the upcoming 2025 games to be held here. So this past weekend, Jada and her family, they went to St. Mary's, Ontario, and that's where the Canada Baseball Hall of Fame is. And so when they took that ball that she first pitched, you know, they told her, this is going to be in the Hall of Fame, and she didn't really expect it. And lo and behold, it came true. So just imagine, at 16, going to Canada's Baseball Hall of Fame, she mentioned some of the greats, including Larry Walker, for instance, who was enshrined in that particular hall. And there is the ball and her jersey, right there with all the memorable uh, baseball players and mementos from their careers. Jada Lee, baseball in the Baseball Hall of Fame. How cool is that at all? Stick with baseball for a second as we ease into it here. So Blue Jays fans will remember the crime dog, Fred McGriff. He's now going to be enshrined in the Baseball Hall of Fame at Cooperstown. So he had a great career, of course, obviously Hall of Famer. Five years with Toronto, and the baseball writers and the committee members, they've overlooked, and now there will be no Hall of Fame placement for Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, of course, accused of using steroids, and Kurt Schilling, who turns out to be a bit of a strange bird. But McGriff goes in. Incidentally, it was today in 1990 that the Blue Jays actually traded Fred McGriff and Tony Fernandez to San Diego for Robbie Alomar and Joe Carter. And, of course, the rest is history. A couple of World Series. Now, McGriff did win one uh, with the Atlanta Braves, but in he goes to the Hall of Fame. And one of the most notorious figures on the face of the earth, O.J. Today, in 2008, O.J. Simpson was uh, sentenced to 33 years in prison for kidnapping and armed robbery. And, of course, the world watched the murder trial where he was acquitted in those murders. But anyway, let's keep going. 36 years ago today, in 1986, the UN declared International Volunteer Day. So thank you very much to everyone out there who is a volunteer in any capacity. Your horsepower and effort makes a massive difference. Let's go. All right, hate to say, but we're going to talk about food. So Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, who we've had on this program in the past, he's professor of food nutrition at Dal. Last year, when they were forecasting the increase in price of food, and they said it was going to be about 7%, he was told, and his team were told, you know, you're just stoking fear, it's fear-mongering, and you're trying to scare people, when in fact flu- food inflation hit about 10.1%, so they weren't wrong. He says next year, for families of four, your bill is going to go up over $1,000 as well, according to the 2023 Food Price Report. Oh, boy. So, you know, how we deal with these matters, whether it be municipalities, really try to do whatever they can to accommodate those who would like to do some backyard farming or homesteading and or the province and the federal government treat this as the public health crisis it is. You've heard the food bank numbers for me and it's just gobsmacking just how many people are turning to the food bank but up goes your food bill again next year. Some of the items itemized in the report that I saw. So bakery items, meat and dairy should be in line with the overall rate. Fruit may be comparable bargain, just 5%. Vegetables are expected to go up as much as 8%. And interestingly, you know, when asked, what can be done here? Dr. Charlebois goes on to say that if we start saying no thanks to the some expensive items, like a $30 steak looks attractive on the shelf, but not in my pocketbook. So if we start saying no to some of the real expensive options, Dr. Charlebois thinks that that will see the want for the grocery stores to get back in line 
and to bring some of these prices down because their profits are soaring. I know their input costs and operating costs are also soaring. But anyway, there you go. And then there was an interesting story about how we operate in the grocery store itself. And it's a number of people who are willing and wanting to use a self-checkout. And their numbers have been absolutely soaring. So they saw a 29, pardon me, 29% of all transactions at food retailers were processed through self-checkout in 2020. That's 23% hike from the year prior. Okay, 75% of Canadians have used self-checkouts while visiting the grocery store at least once in the past six months. 85 of people who responded to the survey said they were satisfied with their experience. 47% said they'd be willing to use a cashless, uh, a cashier-less grocery store in the future. They also go on to say that over the next year-over-year increase will be about 12% up to 2026. All right, it seems easy. I've used them, I admit, I've used a couple in the past. We have one item and there might be a long line at the, at the till where there's actually a human being operating it. But, you know, of course, grocery stores are just going to use it for dealing with labor costs, and they'll save some money on that front, all the while profit soaring, as I've mentioned. Maybe it's time we look at, you know, taxing some of the robotics. You know, being a clerk at a grocery store, working in retail can be quite hateful because a lot of customers are really not very pleasant to deal with, but it's good, solid training ground for jobs in the future. So just look at all the people who are turned to these self-checkouts. Maybe just maybe there could be a fee or a tax associated with it so that, you know, all those savings just don't end up on the bottom line and all these people who won't be able to get a job as a clerk because of the self-checkout. Anywho. All right. So we mentioned the porch pirate and that type of scam. And we've heard some devastating stories in the recent past about scammers infiltrating one of your loved ones and bilking them of their hard-earned money. Then there's a story in the news today about a lady in Deer Lake, and she's lost upwards of $20,000 from her savings account. It's her life savings. So it's just one more friendly and hopefully helpful reminder that just be so very careful with your personal information, your banking information in particular. You know, there are so many well-orchestrated scams that look so real. As she doesn't know exactly what happened, she filed a complaint with her bank. There'll be an investigation. She's not too optimistic about getting that $20,000 back, but just really have to watch it as we proceed through this digital world. Okay, so no surprise when we see what's happening in other parts of the country and capacity issues regarding children's hospitals at their emergency room, we're seeing it here. Been a surge in children with respiratory issues, and now consequently, there's been some surgeries, routine surgeries, and appointments that have been impacted. If you're a patient that was on the list for a, a, a surgery, you'll be contacted, of course, with a rescheduling date. But I don't, su- I don't suppose anyone's too, too surprised with this. So you couple in how the last few years have been handled and what we've done. Then you factor in the lack of opportunity to buy children's acetaminophen or ibuprofen, and of course the surge and the illness themselves. Now, Dr. Fitzgerald says it's not like years, un- unlike years prior to the pandemic, but still cold comfort. What seems a bit tone deaf is when they go on to say, you know, just call 811 or call your family doctor. If it was only so easy to call your family doctor, when how many of these families just do not have one? So the emergency room, there's a reason why capacity has been reached and so many diversions have happened, whether it be the lack of staff and or the lack of doctors or access to. So if you're one of these families who are experiencing this and you want to tell us what you saw and felt when you went over to the Janeway, and you know, parenting is hard enough. It really is. 
but it never becomes more difficult than when you're dealing with a sick child. Then you offer up the respiratory illness bit and having a hard time in breathing and what have you. It is a super stressful, super stressful time of life. So if you're a family in that particular predicament, please feel free to join us this morning. All right. The opposition, rightfully so, are calling on the government to do more, including pass legislation that will ensure that couples are not separated upon entering either personal care homes or long-term care facilities. Those stories are unreal. You know full well that their health and mental well-being will deteriorate rapidly when they've been separated. Of course there's going to be different medical needs. And yes, the province says, you know, how and why would we legislate something that we can't deliver on? Well, other provinces have figured it out. And this is just too important. So again, whether it be for their physical health or their mental health, something has to give. We just can't hear these stories as frequently as we've heard them in the past. And I'll put this one out there for your consideration as well. The fact that come March, mental illness will now be on the eligibility list for medical assistance in dying is a conversation that, of course, is extremely complex and, yes, quite troubling, but we have to have it. We spoke with an advocate last week or the week before, Christy, on the show. You know, the question is not only whether or not that's appropriate, as opposed to offering supports that can indeed see you get the help you need and the support you need so that you can live without the thought of medical assistance and dying dangling over your head. The question not only on the federal front, but do we have the capacity and the access for required supports in this province? And the answer at this moment in time is probably not. So I know that's a big one. You want to take it on. We can do it. How are we doing on the phone there this morning? Fonts. All right, a couple of quickies here. Okay. So, admittedly, the gun, cro- gun control legislation is a little bit over my head. I am not an owner of any of these firearms. But the last-minute amendments on Bill C-21 are absolutely troubling, even if you are all about gun control. And I have no problem with gun control measures in this country, including ban on handguns and the rest of it. But if the list of banned weapons or firearms sees that some are out, but another firearm that does the exact same thing with the exact same capacity is all of a sudden banned, I think it's fair to question how they approach this. It has to be logical. You know, the problem with gun control conversations is that they just are so hyperbolic sometimes that it's hard to get down to the brass tacks of what's real, what's perceived, what's fear-mongering, and what's reality. It doesn't look or feel, even with my limited understanding of firearms, that all of a sudden no one's going to be able to hunt. You know, because there's all sorts of weapons that are not banned that allow you to hunt. But if they include banned weapons or firearms or guns or rifles that are unnecessarily banned because they do the exact same thing as as firearms that are being allowed to be held by hunters or collectors or sports shooters or what have you, it's a fair conversation to have. Now, again... When it gets so extreme, it's really difficult to, you know, have a legitimate, mature, honest conversation about what this bill looks like. Now, don't take it from some of the gun lobbyists, because, of course, anytime there's any conversation about guns, they'll be opposed in full no matter what's on the list. But the National Police Federation, they describe this bill as a missed opportunity to reduce gun crime. Here's one of the quotes in a written statement that was presented to Parliament. Bill C-21 does not address criminal activity. Illegal firearms proliferation, gang crime, illegal guns crossing the border, or criminal use of firearms. So if the National Police Federation thinks that there's some unnecessary flaws in this bill, then let's have an honest conversation about it. And honest being the key word. 
Then you go on to hear from others and say, it's very complicated technically. It's very difficult to explain. I admit, freely, it's difficult for me to explain, but it does feel, and I've heard from some pretty level-headed people over the weekend in particular, and they're not, you know, freaking out about you'll never be able to hunt again, but they do think that there's some unnecessary measures tackled and taken in this particular bill, especially with the last-minute amendments. But if you want to take it on, we can do it because it's a big conversation and we're not afraid of it. A positive one before we get to the break and then back to your calls. Say good morning and congratulations to Percy Hines White, born in St. John's. He's got a pretty good CV as an actor, whether it be on uh, Marvel's The Gifted, The Twilight Zone, Murdoch Mysteries, Rookie Blue, but now he's one of the stars in a Netflix hit called Wednesday. It's an adaptation of The Addams Family. So Percy, as they say, comes by it honestly. His father is uh, Joel Thomas Hines. His mother is Sherry White. They have had huge successes in their careers, super talented people. So working on Wednesday, he got to meet one of his cinema, cinematic heroes, Tim Burton, who, of course, is a legend in Hollywood. So he got to work with Tim Burton as he directed four of the episodes of Wednesday. So congratulations, Percy Hines White, and break a leg. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, we'll have a great show. I can feel it because you're in the queue. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Good suggestion via email uh, during that break. To avoid being porch pirated, maybe use your work address as the delivery address so that, of course, the newsroom will have it for, my, for me, and I can pick it up after the show, as opposed to hoping no one pinches it off the porch. All right, let's begin on line number three. Good morning, Maggie. You're on the air. Hi, Maggie, on line number three. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I, I would like to throw out the biggest bouquet to the group Neighbors in Need, uh, run by the young lady, Courtney Barber, an amazing person. And to all the Newfoundlanders and Labradorians to donate to this cause is just incredible. What was your experience? We've had Courtney on the show. She's awesome. Yes, she is so amazing. Like, I spoke to you briefly before a couple of times, short and sweet. I have been struggling with depression, anxiety, and been struggling even more recently with medical conditions. And I don't go out of the house much. And, of course, I'm below the poverty line. And a friend referred me to this group about a year ago. Uh, I'm not really good with reaching out, but uh, after a few months, I thought about it and like, yeah, okay. And I'm so glad I did because this lady and her group and all the volunteers and the people that donate everything from groceries to monetary uh, donations to helping find a groomer for my dog, which they did the weekend. And I am just floored. It restored my faith in humanity because the neighborhood that I live in, like I walk with a cane and I've been up to my knees in snow in the last couple of winters and people look right across the street with me with snowballers, didn't even turn their head. And this group has done amazing things for me. And I mean, like I've listened to the this uh, program, medically uh, Medical Assistance in Dying for People with uh, depression and mental health issues, severe and mild, whatever. If I went to that, I mean, like, that's ridiculous. That I think that program is ludicrous. It, there should be more focus on helping people like me, which I have been helped by this group and others. 
to improve and slowly recover because it's not the end-all, be-all. If you have a mental illness, there is a lot of times in between when you can live an okay life. Absolutely. You know, the supports have to be there for the long-term access in particular. But I'm glad that you're giving some shout-out to the Neighbors in Need group because Courtney and her team have really made life a lot easier for a ton of people. Uh, Courtney actually is not even in the province. She's in Alberta. She's coming home for a visit, maybe for the Christmas holidays. She's but, home now, though. Oh, she's home. Oh, good for her. I'm I glad she is. Had the, I actually had the honor to meet her face-to-face. Terrific. She came to my home, and I was thrilled. It was like having a celebrity in my home. Well, she gets the deserved kudos out there for, and I think, and Courtney would be quick to tell you, it's not just her, but she's the she's the, the real leader behind the group. So uh, welcome home, Courtney, if you're listening this morning. And obviously you've made a big difference in Maggie's life, and I'm glad you did this this morning. Maggie, thank you very much. Thank you, Patty, for your time. Take good care of yourself. You too. All bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Okay, let's keep going. Line number one, Dave, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. How are you, sir? I'm doing okay for a Monday. How about you? Boy, not too bad so far. Good. Got to say. Um, rain's over and it's starting to turn cold and look a little bit more like winter, so that's that's encouraging. Yeah, straight up RDF here in town. What do you know? Yeah. Uh, calling this morning regarding over the weekend, I guess, uh, reflecting on a few things that I read. One of them was um, regarding the province of Saskatchewan going to put in provincial protectionisms, I guess, against these foolish new additions to gun rules in Canada that have been proposed by the federal government. Yeah, it doesn't make what Saskatchewan and Alberta are doing make it any more sense. Or Anyway, I, I think it's just cracked what's going on out there. But uh, the federal uh, gun legislation, I think, is worth a conversation. You know, last-minute amendments are generally a bad idea. They always come across with the feel of you're trying to sneak something in. But it's confusing. It's a complicated issue. Uh, I don't think it's all of a sudden there's no one going to be allowed to hunt anymore in the country. I think that's the -the over-the-top rhetoric that kind of derails these types of conversations. But if there are firearms in the bill that are banned, but the exact same thing with a different name and model number is not banned, it's worth a a discussion. It shows that there's very little thought and very little planning that goes into these type of things and that there's more knee-jerk movements of government than it is common sense. We don't need stronger gun rules in Canada. We need stronger penalties for abuse of gun privilege, such as things like having guns. If you pick up some little skeet on down on George Street and you got a gun on him at 12:30 in the evening on a Friday night, well, you deal with him. You you put him in jail for a couple of years on the first offense. Gets caught again, put that up to five or ten years. But the problem is not with societal people that are basically out there, gun abide, gun law-abiding people that use them for hunting and for, for, for part of their, like, case in point, I, I go to a rod and gun club and I enjoy shooting. I don't even hunt. But at the same time, I am a gun owner and uh, a law-abiding one. So I have no respect and no room for tolerance for a government that is clearly overreaching and overstepping its power right now in this in this regard i mean nobody would agree 
And I certainly don't agree with anybody having assault-type rifles and this type of thing other than the military and the police. There, there's no reason for anybody to be running around with automatic weapons. Well, you're not allowed to have automatic weapons anyway. Um, you know, some of the issues with sliding cartridges that can hold more than five rounds and they'll be on the ban list, all right. You know, someone has said to me, and they were quite frank about it, is that if you require something that has bigger capacity than that, and or even some of the semi-automatics are out there to hunt, then you're not much of a hunter. Now, that's his yeah. rhetoric. I haven't been yeah. in the woods in quite a long time myself. But I just do think that we've got to understand some of the issues with some of these duplicate weapons that one is banned and one is not. And then, you know, you talk about penalties. Tough on crime has, it always sounds great, and a pound of flesh makes people feel good, but it doesn't, it hasn't really worked in the, in the past. But if the National Police Federation are saying this does nothing to protect public safety and or decrease gun violence, that's where the conversation has to start anyway. I mean, I think a handgun ban it makes sense to me. i got no problem with that at all. Some heightened penalties for smuggling firearms into the country, uh, penalties for and removing weapons from households where people have been flagged as a danger to themselves or others and or been involved in stalking or domestic abuse. I'm, I'm fine with all of that. But this bill is complicated, it's a bit confusing, and it seems like the last-minute amendments have made what should be a, is already a difficult conversation has made it worse. Most certainly, and I think it's an opportunity for government, especially the Trudeau government, to be able to go back and say, hold on, maybe we overthought this and we're going to change this, and we're not going to ram it down your necks like somebody who's heading towards societal control. Feeding into the conspiracy theorist basic plan and and, and 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 the ability to basically prove them right. Because, I mean, I've heard this type of thing come out of people that would be claimed to be conspiracy theorists, but I've heard an awful lot a couple of years ago that seems to be following along some plan that or some form of predictions that they're capable of making. This thing about taking away hunting guns and whatever the case may be, the police standing out saying it's not going to be of any use to, to curb crime. Well, so back off from it. Get away from it. I mean, we got federal MPs here, too. We've got seven of them. Uh, you know, you should be speaking out for our province. We've been a province that have hunted and used guns in, in the prosecution of our lives for for all of our lives for different reasons. And whatever the case may be right now, if you're going to come up with something that actually curbs or in some way, you know, has the uh, attempt in mind to stop certain levels of crime that involve guns, then make the penalties for it suit the crime. Appreciate the time this morning, Dave. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Patty. And everybody, get out and have your say on this, because realistically, it gets talked about first, then we're swallowing the legislation. This needs to be a strong pushback by everybody. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, buddy. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, Brian on Twitter says, how many people are they catching on George Street with guns? I don't know, but it's not like we haven't heard about gun violence in this province in the recent past, right? Plenty of it. And on top of that, and, you know, gun ownership is per capita pretty big in this province. It really is. The numbers are out there if people want to digest them. But one of the things that doesn't get discussed here, which I think might be one of the most dangerous components of potential gun violence, is just how many ghost guns we're confiscating now. I mean, you've seen the stories, whether it be catching people with X amount of drugs uh, and weapons and cash, and some of these ghost guns, people are printing them on their 3D printers at home. We have no idea who has any of these, right? So 
what does government think and say about that particular facet? You shouldn't be allowed to do it. It should be, should be a crime automatically to print one, right? Unless there's a process that has the oversight and monitoring and permits and all of these types of things that we can help understand who has guns and where they are. But, yeah, I'm not afraid of this Bill C-21 conversation. But, you know, again, we've got to try to resist the thought that, all of, you know, when someone says, well, their goal is that we are unarmed and then, of course, the tyrannical government and X, Y, and Z. I mean, that really just says out loud that you're willing to engage in a firefight with the military or the police, which is kind of a strange thing to be saying out loud. And there's going to be plenty of firearms available where you can continue to hunt. So that doesn't mean that the conversation about what is on the list and why it's banned versus something that is the exact same product just a different manufacturer and a different model number is not banned. That's a fair discussion in my mind. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Donna wants to talk about health care. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Donna. You're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. My pleasure, Donna. Go right uh, ahead. My son has been sick since 2019. His first year, his family doctor deemed him, basically, he has too many symptoms. He can't come back. He only, she only deals with one symptom at a time. So he was getting sicker and sicker. His friend decided to find another doctor. She referred him to a specialist, which was fine. They couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. He still has issues. They found that he was vitamin D deficient because he was laid up for two years. He finally got that solution figured out, but his symptoms still remained. And they said that if the symptoms didn't go away to come back, so he's been, they've been trying to get him figured out. The past week, last weekend, we had to get the, uh, the ambulance to come get him because something happened to him. He has a neck problem, and it's escalating now that he has problems walking. So the ambulance came, took him in. He barely could move. He had numbness down his left side, his arm, and his neck. The doctor treated him. She said, okay, it seems like you have a neck issue. You're going to need an X-ray. Uh, and he had MRIs done previous, showed that he had a bulging disc or degenerative disc in his neck. They, She went out, she came back in, she said, oh, that's not the issue, you have a muscle spasm. We'll give you a cocktail of drugs. They gave him all kinds of painkillers to IV, and he had a reaction to the last one. And I, luckily, was there. He kept ringing the bell for them to come in because he felt really weird. He started shaking, and he couldn't feel anything. I called out. There was nobody around. And I know that emergency was blocked that night. It was blocked. They treated him. Another doctor came in and said, unfortunately, we can't do anything for you. You have multiple symptoms. We don't know what to do. So go home, whatever. His specialist had requested since June, because his issues have escalated more and more, to go get an MRI. The MRI he requested is after four times now requesting the MRI. 
to be an emergency MRI to check to see what's going on with his neck, and it's been denied. He can't be seen until after Christmas. After Christmas. I don't know what to do. Like, four years he's been sick. He went back to work for a year and a half with pain, but he could tolerate it. He was fine. He ended up with COVID last the week before that, and that's created the problem with his neck again due to coughing and whatever he did. Whatever happened to his neck, it just made it worse. We don't even know where to turn because they said the MRI should be, we should get one shortly. No sign of it. So I don't, we don't know where to turn. Or we're all, I'm doing my best. He had to come home and live with me because he, he's walking with a cane, even going to work. So uh, I don't know where to turn. It's, and when he goes to the hospital, he, hasn't, he has issues going to the hospital. When he goes, they look at his file. There's something on his file that they won't look any further. They say his symptoms are basically all in his head. And I don't know where it's coming from because it's a physical issue, not a mental issue. So if they say that it's physiological, have they suggested or referred him to a counselor, or are they just dropping him and that's that? Just they wait for the MRI. Him. Back in 2019, his family doctor did, it before she, when he was going back, he had to write why he was being seen in, his, in her office, and then she got sick of him coming in with multiple symptoms, so she sent him for a four-hour psychiatric evaluation. He got in automatically up to St. Clair's. I was waiting with him for four hours outside the door, and they deemed him fit. He was fine. There's nothing wrong with him. He's physically sick. He was physically, there's something physically wrong, not mentally wrong. But every time he goes to the hospital, they look at his file, and they say that he's, uh, he went through that reaction there last Sunday, and the nurse looked at him, are you under anxiety? No, you're not under anxiety. You had a, a reaction to a drug. Of course you're going to have a bit of anxiety. You don't know what the name of God is wrong with you. Well, absolutely right. No. I don't know if that's a, sort of a strange question to ask someone who's in a state of worry and the unknowns associated with the personal health, of course, there's some anxiety associated with it. Yeah. So and what's the reality of what he can kind of do? Did you say he is going to work, albeit in pain, using a cane? He, he, yes, he, he has been to work now the past week since he, he was off due to COVID, and, but his neck got three times worse. He, he can't, if he... He walks like he had a stroke, like someone who had a stroke and they have trouble walking after, like sometimes people have trouble with their walking ability after a stroke. That's the way he walks, like he can't lift his feet. It's like they're heavy and uh, he's dizzy, off balance, and I don't know what to do with him. I don't know. I almost, the, when he was in the hospital, I was going to refuse to take him home, but why would I do that? They're not even looking after him in there anyway, you know? Because they look at him as a, a mental, he has a mental issue, which he doesn't. I'm living with him. I know if he had a mental issue. And he even said if I, he, he went to that psychiatric exam for four hours and it came out fine. I wish I knew where to direct you, but in these personal matters regarding health care, there's, really, there's limited 
help out there beyond whatever discussion you've already had with whatever healthcare professionals that you're dealing with. Hopefully the MRI happens sooner than later so you can get a, a legitimate diagnosis and then hopefully a treatment plan. Well, I think what, with the MRI is he had one in he had one in 2021, so they're looking at that and saying, well, you have a bulging disc, but it's okay right now. So, but this is 2022. I understand. You know, and something else could happen. He could have had something. I don't know what's going on, but I think it's all to me. It's I'm not blaming the doctors. I'm not blaming the nurses because I think they're doing the best they can. I think it's all political. It's all. A What's political about it? I'm sorry. What's what does that well, mean? I think it means it's it's government regulated. He had an MRI, so he can't have another one until 2023. Basically, that's what it boils down to. He had one probably a year and a bit, so he shouldn't have another one. But I know people who are just sick, and they get an MRI within a couple of weeks. But his doctor has tried since June, and he cannot up that appointment. He cannot get that appointment right now. Like, say, tomorrow, he can't get in, or he can't get in two weeks' time. I understand. Well, hopefully, with 2023, the calendar about to flip very quickly. Hopefully, that means sooner than later, this can happen. I wish you and your young fellow well, and hopefully he's not struggling too badly. But thank you for your time this morning, Donna. All right, thank you. Take good care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, the weights are real, and the impact is obvious. You know, it is sort of an odd question, to, you know, are you under any anxiety? When you hear the situation described, how could they not be? Uh, let's go to line number one. Paul, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Pleasure. Uh, I, I have to follow that sad story. I feel for that woman. But mine is a good story. started out not too good, but it ended up wonderful. Uh, for I'm calling you because I'd like to, if I can, thank the people by name who helped me out on Saturday night. Sure. What happened, first off, before we thank them? In Calagros, I was coming off of the... Um, picked up my dog from uh, Clippendale's grooming salon and I was driving off the parking lot and I made the misjudgment and ended up putting the front of the car in a ditch. Um, I was pretty rattled at the time and the um, I couldn't get out of the driver's side of the car but I was able to get out the other side but the poor dog uh, it was in the back seat and he was terrified and before I was able to get out, these two ladies and a gentleman came up, and they were all concerned and helpful and offering help and empathetic and considerate and kind and as best you could be. Uh, they called a towing truck for me. Um, they uh, uh, insisted on staying with me. I told them I was okay and the dog wasn't wasn't physically hurt, and uh, I said uh, thank you for your help and you know you guys could go on about your business now because I'm sure you have busy things to do, but no, they insisted on staying with me, and uh, it was a good thing because I, you know I was rattled at the time and I didn't even realize it, but they did, and they were. Very, very pleasantly uh, considerate of my situation. Uh, the towing truck came, 
put me out the ditch in uh, short order, and uh, uh, when I was, he was just about to leave, he came by, I was getting ready to pay him, and he said, there's your Christmas present. Excuse me. Don't worry. Merry Christmas. My buddy. Ah, jeez, sorry. It's that's okay, Paul. I'll look, I'll, that's I'm... a great story from my point of view. And I'd just like to thank the people by name if I could. Is that okay? Go right ahead, Paul. Absolutely. Uh, the ladies were Karen Nelson, uh, Jackie Mensacola, Bradley Piercy, and the towing company was Perry's Towing. And I'm just so grateful to all of them. Uh, it was just a wonderful experience in the end. Well, obviously, it hit you in the feels, and I'm glad those people treated you with the kindness and humanity that you deserve, that everyone deserves. And, Paul, the emotions are obviously quite raw, but I'm glad you told us about, the, about it this morning. Positive outcomes are most welcome on this program. Thanks for the opportunity to thank him, Patty. My pleasure. You take good care, Paul. You too. Merry right. Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I'm getting a bit of Merry Christmases over the weekend. Had a birthday party. There was a bunch of those exchanged. And, of course, uh, again, the holiday season. You know, people talk about the offering of uh, happy holidays or what have you or season's greetings. And, of course, when you hear me say Merry Christmas, that's a well wish. That's about it. Let's take a break. When we come back, Bob's in the queue to talk carbon tax. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Morning, Bob. You're on the air. Yes, good morning. Uh, Paddy, Seamus O'Regan had to come to the Newfoundland to sell the carbon tax. I don't know if that was difficult for him to do that, to go walk, work against Newfoundland, help Trudeau and what he's doing to Newfoundland already. Including what, Bob? What are you referring to what they've done to the province? Well, the $5 uh, checks were a con job to introduce the carbon tax. Now, that carbon tax discourages the oil, and that costs us... Uh, uh, billions of dollars. What what kind of a check are they going to give us to replace all that money, right? Uh, okay, so how does it discourage the oil industry on a standalone basis? You know, to keep our oil play alive already, we had to make so many concessions, we are already losing millions. You know, I mean, can't people see that the Prime Minister alone is the the culprit is devastating to Newfoundland. He's making those decisions. He's the one. He's the most ardent uh, 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 climate change person in, in the, all the oil-producing countries. And Newfoundland is paying the price. You know, got to be a trust, a just transition. So Trudeau don't buy into that. You got all kinds of mindsets in the world. You got the Types that follow Trump, you got religious mindsets, and to not know that you got that—that that is the correct mindset to make a 
a just transitions. It got to be worked out with all the countries, eventually with trade talks and with different things. They just had a, a, a meeting in uh, a world meeting among oil producers on climate change, and they said the worst emitter, they failed to get an agreement, and they said the worst emitters wouldn't wouldn't agree. I mean, can't people put it all together? You know that. But that's interesting not you say that, Bob. Oil, or it's but not about uh, how much uh, uh, climate change is, is costing us. People can't seem to think it a little bit further. That the only way to bring this about, and look at the sacrifice Newfoundlanders are making, how, how readily they, they said leave it in the ground and gave up millions of dollars. But we're not leaving it in the ground. Just hold on a second, Bob. Money. Hold on a second, Bob. So and everyone is so caught up in, in in how you know being kind to one another and taking up uh, collections and doing, uh, raising funds. I think they don't have their head on right there. You know, the, the most the best thing they could do for Newfoundland. Uh, Alberta got a, a, a just uh, invoked a sovereignty act. And why are they doing that? They're pushing back. Why can't we push back? We can't seem to know where the fight is and what's right and what's wrong. It's not about climate change. It's about a fair transition, you know, in the duration. Yeah, okay, so a couple of things. Um, so we're not leaving it in the ground. That's one thing that's obvious is that's not happening. Uh, the biggest find off the shores that w- went to the federal government for approvals and release from the environmental assessment was given. So that's happening. Then you talk about the, and I, th- I think you're referring to the COP27 meetings in uh, in Egypt, where there was uh, conversations and requests for all the representative nations to talk about phasing out the use of fossil fuels. Canada said no. We didn't sign on. We refused to sign on. So, I mean, some of the things, you know, we get caught up in the perception that the industry is dead when there was record production of oil in this country this year, record. More barrels than ever before, more revenues than ever before, more royalties than ever before. So it's not necessarily dead. And then you and I are all going to be chipping in on a pipeline that's going to cost more than Muskrat Falls and Bade and Nord, and the records are up, and the country refused to sign on to an agreement that said phase out fossil fuels. So, yeah. What pipeline is that? Alberta's pipeline? Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, where is that bringing oil to, Betty? The West Coast. They, they wanted to bring it east to the coast of Newfoundland, didn't they? Well, there was an Energy East pipeline that was proposed, and there's a variety of reasons, including interference from Denis Cordaire, who was then the mayor of Montreal, and refusing to allow access through that part of the country. Then there was the time it took before the proponents just withdrew. <coughs> so there's, I think there's two or three contributing factors as to how that went away. But that Kinder Morgan pipeline in Alberta, we, the country bought that. We're building that. It's being built at this very moment. Yeah, but it's for the encouragement of uh, Alberta. I'm talking about how Newfoundland has fared. Uh, uh, Penny, everyone talks about the oil. We never made any money on Alberta. You remember that, how they said, well, at least it gets the oil industry kick-started. And look at all the concrete plat- the deals that Newfoundlanders made for concrete platforms, and you had to get back their expenses uh, before we got royalties, and so they had to pay for a concrete platform. So all the decisions were made, 
it seems like we never capitalise on it, and we're not now. Trudeau got to be blamed for at least slowing our... I mean, the tree, in the heyday when Alberta was making billions, not millions, billions, Trudeau had that three-year uh, requirement to, to pass uh, Newfoundland applications. And that, that, that devastated it then during that heyday. And then when the heyday was over, when climate change came out, now we got all those restrictions. We're still not making the money we should. What restrictions are we talking about now, sorry? What? What restrictions are we talking about now? Because that bill, that 69, that three-year issue, that was a problem. I mean, that was more about time than actually comprehensive science. So now that's gone. So what further restrictions are we talking about, just so I'm I'm able to follow along? Well, the carbon tax, that 5% carbon tax, that's carbon. That got to slow down a discouraged production, haven't it? Yeah, well, it's, you know... Why is Trudeau bringing in that carbon tax? He wants to uh, discourage oil production. He's talking climate change. He's he's the greatest advocate of climate change. Most all the oil produced here goes elsewhere. So, I mean, it's a global commodity. So regardless of where it's produced... It's where it's refined. We'll have the biggest issue based on prices and stuff we pay. There's, you know, funny enough, when Baden Nord was released, there is now exactly zero projects in front of the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. Zero. The, the, uh, the investment in Alberta, long before any of this happened, was starting to dwindle. And interestingly, again, oil companies in Alberta were fine with the carbon tax. Because the carbon tax really has a massive impact on individuals, much more so than it does big companies. Companies with the capacity to buy carbon credits and, you know, get investment from government into technology like carbon capture and all these things, they're not paying what they should be paying. The individuals are paying. Now, the difference in this province here is we had an agreement which exempted home heating fuels, and now there's going to be a carbon tax on it. That's a problem. That's a problem for a lot of folks. Now, the province has lost all the revenue, but now that we're on the federal scheme, people who are paying the carbon tax will get a rebate check, which is also quite strange. In some provinces, they get back about 90% of what they pay in carbon tax in a quarterly check. So the biggest issue regarding carbon, ta- carbon tax for me coming next, next April, is it? Yeah, next April, is that we're going to be paying the tax on home heating fuels. That's going to make a difficult situation even that much worse. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll leave that there, Patty. I noticed that uh, NATO uh, put a cap on Russian oil now at $60 a barrel. And Russia's threatening to cut off uh, 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 oil supply to uh, NATO country, European countries. I mean, are we going to try, or is anyone wondering, even wondering about that, that we, you know, that it might be a great opportunity for Newfoundland? And uh, they could pull the, I mean, I'm only dreaming in Technicolor, but they could draw the uh, oil out of the ocean and without even coming ashore, bring it over to Russia and bring it over to Europe, you know? Well, Patty, let's cut to the chase. How many people in Newfoundland say leave it in the ground and they just keep talking about how it's costing us for... Haven't that got to be done, though? It just Is that the only thing that's going to work, that we work it out sometime, like we work everything else out of all the countries that cooperate and trade and, and, and a fair yeah, time? So. If fairness don't matter to religious fundamentalists, why are women looking for a fair... 
uh, wage, uh, same wage as men. Why wouldn't it? The, the religious fundamentals will tell you, don't worry about what someone else is getting. You agreed on that. I don't know how you brought religion into this all of a sudden. Why wouldn't women want to be paid the same as their male counterparts, though? Pardon? Say again. Why wouldn't women want to be paid the exact same amount of money as their male counterparts with a similar experience, education, and training, and all the rest of it? I'm trying to uh, equate that with the uh, oil, uh, you know, producing our oil... When we got uh, climate problems, the religious people—that's the way they think. You got to, uh, you know, you can't. It's like the story in the Bible. You know, the, the man paid different wages to different people, but they agreed on it. So those women, when they went to work in that place, agreed on that wage. So you're battling mindsets. Do you think we should leave the oil in the ground, Penny? No, I don't think the the taps are going to be turned off for the foreseeable future. There's still a demand for the product. Will demand fall off? Absolutely. That's what the forecast internationally says. But where we are positioned here, I mean, and you keep saying we, but of course the government doesn't produce oil. The oil companies produce oil. So... If there's going to be arguments made about, there's no such thing as green oil, so we can stop, people who say that should stop saying that. But if we talk about total emissions and human rights and regulatory certainty and all that stuff, Canada is not out of the oil game. we're, We're just not. I would imagine the next big fuel opportunity for the country would be in the world of natural gas, if, uh, if I had to be honest. But, uh, Bob, I'm late for the news, but I don't quite understand the religious angle with the oil business or pay equity. But you it's, know. A mi- it's a mindset, Patty. Uh, okay. I mean, we've discovered all the different uh, uh, sexual orientations. And, so? and now we're discovering all the mindsets that are out there that... You know, you can't force people, but we we got to deal with all this. The, the mindsets are hurting us, and Trudeau is hurting us. I, I'm sure of that. I, I can't convince you of it. But why do you, why do you try? But why is this about convincing me of anything? Of anything? Well, I guess I'd like to have acknowledgement. I, I, no one else in open land is talking about it, only me, you know. That's maybe, maybe not I'd true. like to have acknowledgement. Am I wrong about that? Well, some of the things you said were just factually incorrect. Um, so I'll show what else to say about that. Yep. Okay, Patty. I'll let it go. Okay. okay Talk to you again, thanks. Bob. Bye bye. Thanks, Pat. Uh, let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four. Kim, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and all the listeners. Thank you so much for having me on this morning. My pleasure. So, Patty, I want to talk today about our annual vigil to remember people who died by suicide. Um, This is the 18th year for the vigil, and it's held every year to support family and friends who lost loved ones to suicide. We have a couple of poems. We have music by Shelley Neville and Peter Halley and Dan Dillon. And we have slide, a beautiful slideshow that we have, you know, about 125 pictures and counting of those that we're remembering. And the slideshow music is by Judy Brazel, Shannon Power, and the Anna Sisters. And you can join in person um, on Sunday, December the 11th at 3 o'clock at St. Mark's Church on Logie Bay Road, or you can also live stream through St. Mark's Facebook page. So that 
www.facebook.com slash St. Mark's NL. So that's essentially the vigil. And, of course, this year we are so excited for the first time since 2019. We're actually going to be able to join together for sandwiches and cookies and tea and coffee. And Dan is going to play a little bit of music. So it really allows people the opportunity after the vigil, which can be so emotional for people, to come together and kind of share and refreshment. And we're so happy to St. Mark's that, you know, they provide this space for us. And they're going to do the coffee and tea and all we got to do is bring the goodies to go along with that so um, let people know exactly what happens at the vigil for especially for those families who have not attended in the past and maybe as you and i've discussed many times you know some of those thoughts of embarrassment or the stigma and maybe they avoid any public conversation or acknowledgement of what's happening in their family what happens at the vigil okay so of course you come in and uh, you know you're greeted in such a lovely space by St. Mark's and and Dan will play a little bit of music and Dan Dillon and then people come in and then we start off with a prayer and you know kind of a welcome a greeting and then uh, Shelley and Peter will play a song and then we actually do some remembrances like to remember all the people who died and remember those of us here kind of a little prayer for people right because prayers never hurt uh, you know people so this is like a multi-faith um, perspective and um, you know and then there's you know we do like a, a prayer called prayer for survivors and we do um, we do candle lighting the most important part of our vigil and we we actually read aloud the names of all people that we receive so people are invited to submit names of their loved one or friend and we will read those names and right now we have about 150 names that we read aloud and um you know we do we do that and then uh, we also will show the slideshow as well during the vigil so people who submit uh, photos we will actually show those to the beautiful music of the Anna sisters and shannon power and judy brazel so it's really a time, um, it, it's it's soft and reflective, you know, the environment is really a safe space for people to come together. And, um, you know, um, it, it allows people before the holiday season to actually, you know, people say that they can't start their holidays until after they've been to the vigil. It really helps reduce stigma and taboo for people and, and, and to shine a light of hope and healing, right, to all who've been impacted by suicide. And one of the things that is really important, Patty, about suicide loss is people need to know that when their loved one dies, it's really important to celebrate the legacy of their loved one. People are afraid to do that sometimes with suicide, and people are afraid to ask about it. So, for example, my brother Brendan was really involved in, you know, residence life. He was a cross-country runner. You know, he played chess. He did so. He got a Bachelor of Arts from Memorial. All those kind of things. So, as a social worker, you know, and a survivor of loss, I really feel it's so important. To, for people to know everybody must be remembered and everybody should kind of have that legacy. It's really important for people. And, you know, if you, suicide loss is so painful and so emotional. And Christmas in the hustle and bustle and the Santa and all of those things that happen, I mean, it's such a fun and happy time for most people. But when you've lost somebody who's died by suicide, it's really difficult. And so people need to know, you know, they, they need to know that they need to come together. 
And if you're out there who, and you know someone who's died by suicide, please reach out to them because it's really important for you to do, do that because when you've lost someone to suicide, you don't always know how to, you know, to reach out. You can't always reach out. And, of course, as we know, Patty, suicide knows no bounds, right? It impacts individuals, families, groups, and communities from all areas areas of life, no matter how much money you make, no matter, you know, what kind of education you have, no matter what kind of beautiful family upbringing you've had, like my family. Uh, You know, my mom, Sheila, and my dad, Bill, we grew up in a family home full of laughter and fun, right? And suicide still happened to us. So it can really happen to anyone. And if it happens, you know, so if you're out there, you know, the one thing we want you to know is, you know, if you've lost someone to suicide, you are not to blame, right? That's really important. So we give important messaging at this vigil for people to kind of to kind of do that, right? And if you're out there looking for support, of course, Tina Davies runs a, a great uh, support group, um, you know, and I'm sure Tina will be on to talk about that later in the week because she, she often does. And, of course, she can certainly reach out to us, um, you know, for information about that. And, actually, I'm really happy to announce that the Rua Counseling Center is running an eight-week group. I'm going to co-facilitate that with the counselor from uh, Rua. And we're going to run like a a therapeutic group. So this is kind of um, a different type of group than Tina runs. So, you know, Tina has a support group. You can walk walk in or, you know, not walk in, I mean, but you can come and go, you know, as you need to. But ours is going to be an eight-week group. So like one week you're going to be able to create a memory box, you know, of your loved one and um, write a letter to kind of say hello to your loved one again. So kind of using some therapeutic narrative practices to really help – you know, really support you in that time of loss. So lots are happening there. You know, we know that um, there's great people out there trying to do things about suicide loss, so we're really happy about that. And as we lessen the stigma and taboo, um, that becomes really more important. And, of course, Patty, we had hundreds of people watch this video last year live live stream through St. Mark's. And uh, from all across Canada, um, you know, people sent the link to their loved ones and and all of that. We started this vigil in Cape Royal, um, you know, my hometown, and there was probably about 20 people there. And we've gone to different, uh, you know, we have... uh, you know, we get over 200, sometimes 300 people in person, and uh, we get hundreds of people now online. So we really feel this vigil is helping people provide some little spark of hope in in what, you know, was a joyous season for so many. Uh, very quickly before I have to go, Kim, the where and the when one more time for the listeners. Okay, it's a Sunday, December the 11th, so this coming Sunday, 3 o'clock p.m., St. Mark's Church on Logie Bay Road. And... Um, it's going to be live streamed through St. Mark's uh, page. And one important detail, today is the deadline to submit photos to, um, you know, Juanita and myself. And, of course, Juanita and her friend Kathy does a wonder, does this wonderful slideshow. So um, just to quickly, so if you've given us the name before and we read the name of your loved one last year, you don't need to submit it again. Same thing with the slideshow. If we have your photo already, you know, don't need to resubmit it. But if you're submitting a new photo or a new name, please email ka 
K-E-L-L-Y at mon.ca, and we'll make sure, you know, that your photo gets in as long as you email us by midnight today, and you can email me up until December 10th with the name, right? But because we're volunteers, the, the slideshow has to be done and put to music and kind of all that, mm-hmm. and we need time to, Juanita and Kathy need time to do that, right? Right. Thanks for this, Kim. Appreciate your time. All right. So Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Holidays, whatever your reason for the season. Thank you so much, Patty and uh, Fonce and David for being true advocates of social justice and service to humanity. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Nice to speak with you, Kim. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take that break. Uh, when we come back, of course, one of the annual reports coming from the Harris Center is the Vital Science Report. Joining us on the line uh, right after this is the uh, Harris Center Director. That's Rob Greenwood. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. We're over 11 panel discussions and some 30 expert panelists. The Harris Center and the contributors looked at a variety of things. Environmental changes, society and climate change, economic impacts, clean tech, oceans and fisheries, the future of oil and gas, communities, infrastructure, food and farming. Join us on the online number one is the director at the Harris Center. That's Rob Greenwood. Good morning, Rob. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome back to the program. Great to be here. It's been a while. It has been. I always uh, enjoyed the Vital Science Report, even though some of it in there is, is red flags as much as it is some opportunities presented to the province. Let's start with the economy. We spoke with uh, Ashley Fitzpatrick last week about climate change, municipal preparation, and what have you. But inside the economy, many people, of course, and governments will admit an over-reliance on the oil business, even though it employs a lot of people, a lot of money flows. What is the future of the oil industry, short and long-term here, and how did you come up with your determinations? Well, that was a key part of the reason we focused on climate, economy, and society at the Harris Center over the last couple of years. And this vital signs that, as you know, we do in partnership with the Community Foundation was really a way to put out there all that we came up with during that 18-month process, really. Uh, one of the key sessions we had in Forecast NL actually was Angela Carter, who's been on a lot talking about some of the real dangers with continuing oil and gas production, but also Max Rulock, who has a long background in the oil and gas sector in the province, was chair of the CNLOPB, and that session is on the Harris Centre website if anybody hasn't seen it. And, you know, both of them, if you interview Angela, as she, as she has done many times, will we'll really feature some of the challenges we all know, the, and we're seeing it daily, as you know, with climate change and how we really have to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But when you look at the global oil and gas environment, and of course it changes constantly with the war in Ukraine, uh, the, uh, the pandemic had a big impact, and so we have projections there from national sources, national government sources, of the decline in oil and gas production over the next several decades. But they don't factor in the Beta Nord development, and they don't factor in the Ukraine war. And so, Patty, there's lots of expertise at Memorial and in the community and industry associations on, on climate change, on the oil and gas sector. The real challenge for us was getting people together who didn't necessarily agree with each other, but who would share their perspectives, confront the evidence together, 
and then come up with some of those discussions and possible solutions. And so, you know, it's pretty clear we're going to have an oil and gas industry for quite a while longer, but it will be gradually declining. We need to look at those economic development opportunities that we can use the oil money for, but also think about our our, our public services that rely on that oil money, and there's going to be trade-offs. So as you well know, there's lots of debate and discussion needed to move forward on this stuff. The Some of the forecasted numbers used did not include Beta Nord, which could have a maybe a billion barrels. I mean, the oil industry always underestimates those numbers. They've already said a half a billion. So you're right. If they go ahead and give it the final business sanction, the industry is not going anywhere anytime soon in this province. But then begs the question about how do you replace the jobs, the wages those jobs create, and the royalties afforded to the province with the industry. But there's still lots of opportunities. So people will use that as a real, oh, no, things are going to go horribly south here in this province. But between the opportunities that we do have, whether it be, and who knows what's in it for us necessarily with hydrogen, but the big one for me is we're the only democratic country on the face of the earth with every critical mineral required for laptop batteries, cell phone batteries, and, yes, electric vehicle batteries. Mining potential is massive. You're absolutely right, Patty, and we feature that in Vital Signs. And Derek Wilton, retired uh, faculty member from Earth Sciences at Memorial, has done a ton of work in Labrador and around the island, and we quote him there. There's, uh, as you know, a lot of activity in central Newfoundland, western Newfoundland, in Labrador, and mining, the demand is absolutely off the charts. In terms of transitioning to electric vehicles, as you say, a lot of the smart technology, you look at opportunities in in clean tech, companies that are flourishing already in Newfoundland, uh, such as Misa, Mm -hmm. with their smart thermostats. And the beauty of sectors like that, and you you talk to Kieran Hanley and his team at Econext, they represent the environmental industry associations in the province. You're confronting climate change head-on, and the market is massive. So, you know, as you well know, the tech sector in the St. John's region especially can't hire people fast enough. So getting the trades, the training, the skills we need is key. But also a lot of the traditional sectors in the fishery, forestry, agriculture, they're all needing to in- integrate new technology because, again, as Glenn Blackwood, the former head of the Marine Institute, used to say, if we get the fishery right, it's a never-ending mega project. So there's lots of opportunities there, and climate change is just forcing us to do them smarter. And, you know, it's not all about electric vehicles because, as I said, your cell phone battery, your laptop battery, and th- uh, components required in the solar business and in the wind energy, we can be part of it. I wonder, did your conversation include this next step? Canada's really good at producing stuff. We're not great at processing stuff. We do an awful lot of exportation of our R&D and secondary and tertiary processing. You know, Canada has an opportunity at full supply chain inside these critical minerals. Was that discussed at your forum? Well, we've we've had sessions on this, and of course, with the Harris Center mandate, looking at regional policy and development in the province that we've been at it 18 years now, Patty. Uh, hard to believe, and. Canada, our political economy, traditionally we talk about the, the, the staple industries. You know, this country started with Europeans. Of course, in, Indigenous people were here long before and living off the land and the sea. And when Europeans came here, it was for the exact same reasons. It started with the fishery, with cod, as we know, and fur and agriculture products and mineral products and forestry, etc. And we've always been 
kind of hewers of wood and drawers of water, focusing on natural resource extraction. And as you say, we have never in this country, relative to other economies of similar size, done as much in value-added production, kind of the downstream value-added. So, you know, when we look at some of the challenges with climate change and rethinking the way we organize our economy, this is an opportunity to do things in a new way. We have a section in the report on the circular economy, because often we think in that linear sense of extraction and production and use and disposal. And now we're having to look in all sectors at kind of a whole system way of thinking so that you're not designing to throw it out when you're done with it. You're designing for reuse. And we have a lot of people in the environmental industry sector thinking about those things now. But also we're forcing our people in the fishery. We have great work being done at the Marine Institute, at our Grenfell campus, in our engineering faculty, on circular economy, in fishery and agriculture. And we've got a feature in Vital Signs on that. And and so that's taking waste products that we used to throw away and we're always wondering about how we can increase value in the fishery and agriculture and forestry. These are taking waste products as inputs, but planning production around that. So there are real new opportunities and a way of changing our thinking about the way we run our economy. Yeah, I mean, if we get the fishery right, it's never our ending cycle. I like the sound of that, even though there's always been the seasonal rackets which seem to repeat themselves year over year in that industry. A couple more quick ones before we run out of time. So, wind. We know there was a ban, uh, a ban on any wind projects in the province, and that was basically to fuel the need, quote-unquote, need for Muskrat Falls. But what did we discuss about wind? And where are the real opportunities there? And secondly, what's in it for us? We know what might be in it for uh, Mr. Risley, World Energy, GH2. Not so much what's in it for us. What was the wind discussion like? Well, we had a great session uh, that included Jennifer Williams. And, and again, that video is on the Harris Center website. And we, we talk about the hydrogen and wind and transition from oil and gas in, in vital signs. And, you know, one of the real challenges, and as we know, we spent a lot of time talking about our uh, hydroelectric industry in this province with Muskrat Falls and so on over the last number of years. And what Jennifer really highlighted is we, we have a really, because of the massive investment we've had, uh, a modern, still waiting to get it fully functional, grid system in this province, and with the Labrador to the island uh, link issues. But... The capacity of our grid is there now to meet our needs, but it's really limited in terms of when you think of the transition to electric vehicles, when you think of some of the massive opportunity around potentially hydrogen and more mines and more development, all that takes power. And you can produce the power, and we've even heard talk about the, the Gull Island project, uh, even with private sector investment. But unless those developers also look at the cost of maintaining, upgrading, and indeed expanding capacity on the grid, that has to be part and parcel of it. You can't look at one without the other. Fair enough. And all of this will absolutely have an inherent link with community municipality preparedness to deal with issues regarding climate change, whether it simply be the storm surges that we've seen, erosion of the coastline, on and on it goes. The municipalities are really quite nimble and able to, uh, even though they don't have necessarily the in-house expertise to craft plans for the future regarding climate change and mitigation measures, 
But where are we looking there? Because if we're waiting for the province and the federal government to lead initiatives that will benefit municipalities, we might be waiting a long time. And they're able to deal with it in short order, even though we're going to need some guidance and some investment from the different levels of government. So where did we look at communities' infrastructure regarding climate priorities? Well, Patty, you're, you're dead on. And, you know, a lot of the issues around climate, economy and society are about governance. They're about the mechanisms to look at the competing, sometimes conflicting issues around the evidence, around the trade-offs. And you, you know about the fishery. Unless we have governance systems to make informed decisions that people will buy into and move forward together on, we're not going to be able to tackle these challenges. You know, the science is largely there. The technology is largely there. It's really about governance at the federal level, provincial level, municipal, indigenous. And our municipalities in Newfoundland and Labrador, as again, the Harris Center has done work with municipalities in Newfoundland and Labrador for years, uh, we don't have the capacity in most small municipalities around the province to tackle these issues. Uh, in Vital Signs, we have uh, a report on a, a study that was done by Econext with Fundamental Inc., uh, a survey of municipal stakeholders around the province. 45% said discussions were underway, but they didn't have any plan or actions in place around climate change. 10% said climate change hadn't even been discussed yet. Now, that was before Fiona, and I think Fiona really had, when we looked at those scenes from, from uh, Port Basque and the west coast of the island and the, elsewhere in the Maritimes, a fundamental impact on people's realization that it can really hit home you know, in a scary way. And yet we have work from Joe Dario in the engineering faculty at Memorial talking about how engineers can work with communities to find engineering solutions with culverts and water management and storm control management that isn't what you get off the shelf with a large engineering firm on the mainland that in the past we've often just had RFPs bring them in. They do in rural Newfoundland or Labrador what they've done on the mainland in urban centers. Totally different environment. And so we need appropriate technology. That takes discussion and debate. But it also takes capacity, uh, Patty, and in Newfoundland and Labrador, there is uh, work by the provincial government, a, a commitment to whether it's regional government or regional cooperation. But unless neighboring municipalities work together on these things, we're not going to get the solutions put in place where we already have the capacity to do it. We do. It's, it's going to require some guidance. And not to say that we don't have good people, smart people operating and running municipalities, but this is a different kettle of fish. So we're going to need investment and expertise from out of house in an organized fashion. And I think the key there was collaboration between communities. And this is not to, you know, force feed any conversation about regionalization, but this will make it less chaotic, probably less expensive and you know, climate change doesn't recognize where one community ends and the other begins. So they will have a lot of overlap concerns and issues regarding infrastructure and how we build and where we build. So that's going to be important. Rob, I really appreciate you making time for the show. We'll leave it at that for today, but there's a lot more inside Vital Science. So maybe in the next couple of weeks we'll have you back to talk about some of the things we missed uh, this morning. Well, I'd love to. It was in everybody's paper on the weekend. It's on the Harris Center website. Happy to send paper copies out to people and organizations. And thank you, Patty, for, for featuring it. Happy to come on anytime you like. Look forward to the next conversation. Thank you, Rob. Okay, all the best. You too. Bye-bye. That's Rob Greenwood. He's the director at the Harris Center, of course. 
the organization that produces the vital science reports. You want to pick up on anything you heard there or bring up a topic of your choosing, you can do it right after the break, just like the caller wants to talk about cost of living checks. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two, caller, you're on the air. <clears throat> Good morning, Mr. Daly. I have two topics, but I'm going to just keep it short for you. Take your time. Uh, uh, these uh, checks, like I say, uh, you're depositing into your bank account, and it's coming up on the screen. You're only allowed to withdraw $100. And the same way people's going into the tellers, they're still only issuing $100. So any any answer to that question that the Royal Banks are doing this? Yeah, it's a four to five business day hold back on checks if you don't, if you can't cover it in full in your account. So the curious part to that is that they're obliged by law to cash your federal government check up to the tune of $1,500, I think it is, but not so with the province. So I don't know why there'd be a hold back on a provincial check. It's not going to bounce. No, not going to bounce. So that's the rationale there, whether or not... Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, second topic is, I know you're a sports person. Do you happen to catch the, the WBC champ between uh, Tyson Fury and uh, Cesaro there at the weekend? No, I didn't, as a matter of fact. Man, that was some fight. Yeah, one of my boys is a big boxing fan, and he saw it, and he gave me the same report that it was quite an event. Yeah, but uh, Fury, Fury could have taken out at any, at any time. It was because, as dominant as that. Yeah, like you say, well, he, he was a, he, he was a close friend, and, and that was his third third fight. And Fury picked him to come uh, give it another chance. He had two, but he he locked out on the first two. But uh, he's a he's a big humongous man. Fury is. Oh, he's a monster! <laughs> Absolutely. But, yeah, like you say, he had hard times too, eh? Over the last four years, he he, he had been on TV. But uh, I think the next fight that he's going to get with our, one of the other two there, I think he's going to be a different. Different fight altogether. How so? Because he looks pretty, pretty mean looking. But uh, like you say, there was no animosity in the fight between uh, Tyson there the other night and uh, Cesaro. There was no animosity. Like you say, yeah, uh, the, the referee wanted to call in the, in the seven or eight round, but tenth round, Fury, Fury just didn't want to knock, knock down to the floor. Instead of that, the referee called on tenth, on tenth round. He, He's had enough. What did he weigh in at? Because I know he's like six foot nine or something. Oh, he's almost three hundred pounds. That man is. He was four hundred fifty pounds there, but in the last couple of years. But he he still got a bit of weight on. But uh, like I say, I think uh, I think his reach was like I say the over overweighting and the he was uh, six foot six. You know, his reach was humongous. You know, there's no there's no there's no way body could overcome. We I, I knew that. You know. But he tried. He tried his best. But uh, Fury just didn't want to. Didn't want to. He could have. Yeah, well, it was a TKO. But he just didn't want to give him the final punch and put him to the floor. That's the way I looked at it. I know that uh, the Ring Magazine appointment of most active and uh, best fighters out there. There's only been three heavyweights ever that won that prestigious award. Him, Ali, and maybe Floyd Patterson. Maybe. Mm -hmm. I think so. Anyway, I'm glad you enjoyed the fight, and I appreciate your time here. Would you like to say anything else while we have you? No, like I say, he stopped the fight because he's getting too many hit bunches. Hit hits, that's all. It was a good fight. Well, at his size, he can certainly hurt someone in a hurry. Oh, he only, 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 takes, only takes one blow. 
You're not now. Oh, well, any any person. They say this in boxing all the time. Anybody 200 pounds or more can knock out anybody 200 pounds or more with one shot. And it's absolutely true. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, you have a nice day. That's the only reason why I called. I won't take up no more of your time. No worries at all. Appreciate yours. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go to line number one. Good morning, Jacqueline. You're on the air. Oh, good morning. Morning to you. Yes, this is uh, Jacqueline Cook. I'm with Theatre CBS. And um, we're getting ready to put on our third production. Um, It's being performed this week. And uh, it was uh, a community theatre that was established in um, 2021. And um, we're putting on a a radio adaptation of uh, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And uh, we're very, very excited about it. Um, you know, as you, uh, your audience will know, a radio play uh, was to be listened to, but um, our radio play is being performed on the stage. And so uh, there is the, the visual aspect as well. And uh, the emphasis, of course, is on vocal performances where the actors change their voices in order to play multiple characters. But uh, the audience is going to be um, able to have um, a unique experience because they're going to get to see behind the scenes. They're going to get to see how all the sound effects are produced. And we have Foley artists who will be uh, creating the sounds uh, of doors opening and closing, the wind howling, chains rattling and so on. And we also have music as well, which will be live. Um, which will be throughout the uh, performance. And uh, if your audience looks at movies, for example, the soundtracks, the sound effects, the, the music, it all adds to the, to the mood and to, to help to tell the story. But anyway, um, our performance is going to be held at Worsley Park in Conception Bay South, and um, we have tickets available, nothing for Thursday, that's, that's gone. But Friday, we still have some tickets available. And Saturday, um, we have two performances. One is at two in the afternoon and in the evening. And tickets can be purchased if you go to theatrecbs.com. And there is a link there that will take uh, the uh, your listeners to Eventbrite, where they can purchase tickets for $20 for seniors and um, students and 25 for everybody else. <laughs> it sounds great to me. So I've actually seen a play or stage production of a radio show, and it was really quite fascinating. And it was War of the Worlds. Of course, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, which is the version of the H.G. Uh, Wells novel. So in that circumstance... The stage looked very much what it would have looked like inside a radio studio. So there was a desk in front of the performers and sheets scattered around and everyone was standing at their own microphone, those types of things. So are you going to replicate what the studio would have looked like for this version of A Christmas Carol? Exactly. Yes, everything that you've just said. The audience is going to see a group of actors who are going to work. It's a regular day. They're going to the studio, studio, 
they arrive, you'll see them hanging up their coats, getting a cup of tea, then the countdown to on air, and then going to the microphones. And so it's just as it would be in, in a, a radio a studio. And um, so, so you get to see that, and then you get to see the... Um, the interaction between the actors, the relationships between them, the friendships and so on. So it's, you're getting a look at what it is like behind the scenes. And certainly the Foley, I mean, the Foley artists are going to be fascinating to watch because it's so innovative um, getting those, those sounds. A lot of the things that we've found have just been household items that we've said, OK, well, that gives you the sound of such and such. And so it's quite fascinating. It really is. Absolutely. One of my friends is a Foley artist, as a matter of fact, and watching him work is, as you say, it's absolutely quite fascinating. And you wouldn't realize what they're using for a sound effect unless you see it in action. And then, oh my God, that makes so much sense. You know, we exactly. take for granted you, when you watch television or movies and/or listen to the radio, without the texture of additional sounds, it becomes very stark as opposed to very rich when you have bleed in all these sound effects and the foley artist's work and what have you. So this actually sounds like an excellent performance. Oh yes, and we have uh, we have all age groups as well. We have, uh, I mean, amazing talent. Um, people who have acted all their lives, other people who are just starting off, but have this wonderful natural talent. Which, you know, we've said, where have you been hiding? But um, the age range, we have a twelve-year-old actor, uh, and then me, a senior, and everything in between. So it's a wonderful way of bringing people together of all ages to work on a project like this. It's very, very exciting. It sure is. When you see it on the small screen or the silver screen, you'll see how actors can transform themselves to play different characters and the way their, their body behaves and the way their face behaves when they're trying to intonate, for instance. So it'll be cool to watch someone doing a radio performance, of course, and they'll be acting as if there is no audience because they're doing it in a radio booth. But I would imagine people will be amazed to see how their shoulder actions are pulled back and they stick their chin forward and they uh, use their hands to try to get into the character that they're now taking or mimicking versus the last one they spoke to. So it sounds like there's a bit of liveliness, even though people think radio is really quite right, uh, very still, when in fact it's not, because at this moment in time, I have to admit, I'm talking with my hands, and I'm sure you'll see a lot of that. Oh, definitely. I mean, the, the actors, they take on the persona of the, 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 you know, the character that they're playing. So there's gestures and mannerisms and, and you know, there's interaction between the actors and, and there's movement, there's dance, there's everything. I mean, it's just it's going to be such a visual treat as well as auditory. Jacqueline, before we let you go and you give the details one more time, is are you a fan of the radio drama anyway? Oh, I am. Oh, I am. I just, I just love it because, uh, just you know, listening to a radio play and, and your imagination does so much for you, you know, and you can picture the, the scenes, and it's, it's just a wonderful medium. I've listened to a few over the years. I'm trying to recall what some of them were. Uh, well, I saw War of the Worlds, and of course, that's one of the most famous. Uh, what was another one? Moon over Morocco. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, and another one called uh, Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar which I think is called the Todd Matter, I think, officially. So there are a couple that I can think of. How about your faves? Well, it, it's hard to say. There are so many, aren't okay. there? But, um, no, it is a wonderful medium. It really is. And, uh, and I, I'm just so delighted that we're actually uh, taking this, this particular format. And uh, this is the second time, because we did uh, last, last Christmas, we uh, put on It's a Wonderful Life. And that, too, was a, a radio adaptation. 
And um, this this particular one that we're doing of uh, a Christmas Carol, uh, Philip Grecian does a super job in in uh, adapting this. And there's so much humour. I mean, there's so much. It is that that you, you the audience they're going to laugh and they're going to have moments when they're close to tears. I'm sure because there are some very moving moments in it as well. But a lot of humour, a lot of fun, and we're having great fun just just you know rehearsing. It's sort of a lost art. It was huge, say, between the 20s and through the 60s, but not so much these days, although the media landscape has changed dramatically, even in my lifetime. Okay, Jacqueline, where and when? One more time for the listeners who are now absolutely interested in attending. Oh, thank you. That's that's wonderful to have this opportunity. Yes, so it's going to take place at Worsley Park in Conception Bay South. Um, we... Uh, the audience, I guess the capacity will be about 100 people. Um, uh, Friday, we still have some tickets available. Saturday, we are doing two shows. One is uh, at 2 o'clock, the matinee, and then in the evening. Uh, you can get your tickets by going to theatrecbs.com, and there will be a link there that if you click on it, you will, will be taken to Eventbrite, and you can purchase your tickets there. So... Um, I thank you so much to VOCM for supporting um, this uh, endeavour um, by allowing me the opportunity to spread the word. Us radio <laughs> colleagues got to stick together, Jacqueline. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, last one, I promise, is uh, who is the pianist and who, uh, who wrote the original score for this production? Uh, I did, actually. Blah, blah. Sarah told <laughs> me. I wasn't going to say. <laughs> Terrific. Thank you very much for your time. Break a leg. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye. My pleasure. Bye-bye. All right, let's go and take a break. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Heather, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. How about you? Oh, not too bad. Good. Oh, so I'm just calling in um, about our, I guess, new mission or second mission for Mission Annie 2, Mission Possible. So, um, as you know, I'm with Rescue NL, and we're going to be doing another rescue mission uh, for the Manitoba dogs again this year. And uh, last year we did the mission and we brought down 68 dogs. And this year we're going to be bringing down between 100 and 120 dogs and um it's uh we've only decided to do it we only got the green light i guess you should say about um two weeks ago so in one week from tomorrow those dogs will start their travel down um, from manitoba to newfoundland and what's the plan that's a lot of dogs which you would think takes a lot of time a lot of money and a lot of advanced planning for what becomes of the dogs upon their arrival so what is the plan once they get here well, the plan once they get here is that they will go into foster homes, the same thing as we did before. Um, you know, it is really close to Christmas, so we certainly don't want to um, adopt the dogs out for Christmas because we wouldn't want them to be presents. I mean, that's, that can be disastrous. People get animals and then, you know, the novelty wears off and then they don't want them anymore. So they will go into foster homes. Um, they're going to be quarantined before they come and, you know, have their uh, first vaccine. So that they'll be, you know, safe going in the homes in that regard. And, um, you know, they'll get in the homes and decompress and, um, you know, adjust. And what happened last time, um, most of the people that took them in as fosters did adopt them. So, you know, 
fosters will have the opportunity if, you know, they're suitable and able to um, uh, adopt, you know, and they want to, uh, they will be able to adopt. So, um, like I said, the first thing is they'll go into foster first, and then and then we'll go from there and see how, how things are, right? But um, I did want to call because we're still – we're still we don't have all the money yet so that's the biggest thing we need the money for the transportation we're getting really close we just need another couple thousand dollars uh the cost is about twenty five thousand dollars this year we're doing things a little bit different so it is cheaper uh, we're not flying them because uh the cost of the flight this year is is outrageous and we, we couldn't raise that much money so um they're traveling by ground this time so we do need people to open their hearts and open their wallets even if they can give $5 so we can reach our goal of $25,000. Um, so if people could donate to donate at rescuenl.com or they could um, go to Global Pets or Pet Value Paradise and drop off cash and checks if, if they don't do EMT. Heather, I know you have to vet the potential foster families and their household and, of course, if they're willing yes. to adopt at some point. How do you vet the dogs? Because... You know, people want, might want to open their hearts with a monetary donation and maybe want to take the dog in. But what do we know about what dogs have experienced? What kind of trauma? What kind of dogs are biters? What kind of dogs have had health concerns in the past? So that, you know, we give enough information to a potential foster family so they know what they're getting themselves into. So how do you do that with so many dogs? Well, the dogs that, that are coming, like I said, they're, they're already up there now. We've got them already in quarantine so they're already in homes up there so they've already um you know been vaccinated so they've got that um some of them if they have um health issues um they've they've been seen right already so we'll know that when they're coming we'll have some kind of history on them um they'll be treated for you know worms and fleas and stuff once they get here as well so we'll know that going in too um anything else you know we'll We'll know usually when they get here as well. Any assessments, you know, we're going to have some vets when they arrive as well, and we'll, we'll check them out if they need to be checked out. And like I said, up there, they're already in the care of a rescue right now, up there. Okay, good. So Plus. Our, yeah, so we're not just um, taking them and throwing them on, you know, down here kind of thing, right? So we're working that way. And, uh, I mean, these dogs are very, um, very well socialized, actually, because – up there where they're coming from the northern communities the kids interact with those dogs a lot right from when they're puppies they carry them around and so they're actually very well socialized yeah because people need to know exactly what's what's happening and what the dog is like you know whether it be health concerns or any sort of trauma or their biters or the like uh so good enough heather i appreciate the time good luck with it it's a massive undertaking Yes, and, and like I said, for anyone that does want to foster, we do still need. Um, we've got, we've probably got 200 foster applications, but of course, you know, a lot of people like puppies. We do still uh, need some uh, fosters for adults, so they can go on to our website, rescueandl.com, and fill out a foster application. And um, you know, we're still going through those applications and contacting people, so they can certainly do that. And they can look on our Facebook page. Um, we do have some of the pictures of some of the adults coming. We don't have all of them yet. Um, but we will be posting some, um, just a little sneak peek of some of the dogs that are coming, so people can have a look on there. There's a lot of uh, beautiful dogs coming. Well, they're all beautiful, certainly, because I love them all, but, uh, yeah, people can have a look on there, and, uh, like I said, hopefully they can uh, support our mission. And, uh, yeah, we'll give you an update when we get one. I appreciate the time, Heather. Good luck with it. 
Thanks, Eddie. You're welcome. Already. Already. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the executive director at the Single Parent Association. That's Sonia Smith. Good morning, Sonia. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Good morning to you. We wanted to bring some attention to your association and the work you do specifically around Christmas time. I know that, you know, you're going to be able to deliver some 250 hampers, but you've got a long waiting list. What are you seeing at the association? Oh, Patty, every day we're, we're seeing more and more families calling us looking for help. So we were we registered 250. I'm happy to say that those 250 families are taken care of. Now we're working on our 100 families on the wait list. And every day, as I said, other people are calling us. So we, we close our doors on uh, December 23rd. And until that time, we're going to be helping families. So I'm I'm confident in saying that with the help of uh, the generosity of people in Newfoundland and Labrador, we're going to make sure that those 100 families on our wait list are taken care of. How do you come up with the resources to complete these additional 100 pampers? Well, you know what, Patty? It's because of our friends in the media like yourself and like Hot 99.1 and other donors who actually help us get our message out there. It's because uh, we've reached out to people and they know that we're in desperate need to get our message out. And uh, people are calling us, uh, wanting to donate. We're receiving donations online. And until, like I said, December 23rd, we'll be looking out to people to help us make sure that we help those 100 people who are on our, 100 families rather, who are on our wait list. You've been in the charitable world for a long time. What we're seeing these days is different than ever before. Now, I'm always amazed at the generosity of individuals and organized labor and service groups and business and whatnot, but it's the ever-changing face of the people who need this type of help. You know, you might have had some, so, some of the same families that have come back to your association this year for Hamper, but, you know, some people who they never even thought in their wildest dreams they'd need to turn to groups like yours, but they are. Who are they? They are, Patty. We have, uh, as you may know, and some of your listeners may know, we have a, a operational food bank here, and we serve over 200 families every month in our food bank. And we're getting calls every single day from families who are working, working people who are out there trying to make a living, trying to do the best they can. But because of the cost of living and, and the rising cost of living, they're just falling short. So thank goodness they feel like, you know what, I need help, so I'm going to reach out to the Single Parent Association. And we're really happy to help people uh, as best we can. So Christmas Hampers is an ongoing food bank. What else is, goes on at your group? Oh, my goodness, Patty. We, as, as you probably know, we do our back-to-school program, and we also support uh, single-parent families in um, things like we did a Halloween costume drive, so that was great for some of our families in our food bank. We also have an employment program which helps single parents uh, find jobs and it helps with their resumes and uh, job search and those kinds of things. And we've seen great success uh, with that uh, for sure. So that's something that we're going to be focusing on uh, in the new year as well, helping our parents figure out, look, do I want to go back in the workforce? Do I want to go back to school? How are we going to do it? And we're going to be there 
on their journey to help them make those decisions. Yeah, it's important stuff, and I purposefully wanted to bring some attention to what you're trying to achieve. You know, we know there's a lot of folks in need, and some people might even be slightly embarrassed because they've never needed any assistance or a leg up, but the reality is what the reality is. So if you're one of those families, whether it be first-time food bank patrons and or you need some assistance from the Single Parent Association, there's a lot of good people, a lot of good groups out there doing important work to try to lighten your load, maybe make your Christmas just a little bit brighter and take away some of your everyday worries. So keep up the good work, Sonia. Appreciate the time. If people want to help out, can we simply donate gifts or is it monetary donation or what is the best way yeah, for people to help? Can, they can go right on our website at www.spanl, S-P-A-N-L, or if they're in town, they want to drop off a gift card or a monetary donation to our office, we're at 472 Logie Bay Road. Thanks for we, this. Yeah, uh, We'd love to see as many people as possible. Here, here. Nice to have you on, Sonia. Thank you, Patty. You take care and have a wonderful Christmas. The very same to you and yours. Take care. All right, bye-bye. As Sonia Smith, the Executive Director at the Single Parent Association. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's line number two. Duran, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? Great. You? Oh, not too bad. Not too bad. Another, another frustrating week for, for us guys, but other than that, we're... We're doing well. Um, the main reason why I'm calling is that, um, I've, well, we've discussed things in the past, and we had uh, talked about uh, at one time when the town of Cape St. George had conducted a poll uh, regarding the wind turbine project to which 76% of the respondents had voted against the project. Now, this vote was held at the local town council, and it was simple, a are you in favor, or are you not in favor, or undecided? So, up to date, the, the mayor's office has been essentially uh, ignoring the results of the poll. And um, now, uh, in order to, I guess I would say, promote the World Energy Project, uh, World Energy has offered a donation of $5,000 to the Port-a-Port region. So it's $5,000 between 14 communities, which comes up to about $357.57 per town, or in this case for Cape St. George, with the population would be just under 50 cents per person. Didn't I read that the, uh, the company was putting forward $10 million for community initiatives? Or Well, no, that's, that's $10 million for the vibrancy fund. This is just something for Merry Christmas. Here we want to help you out with Christmas, right? So a lot of people are seeing this essentially as, as a bribe. And what has a lot of people upset is that um, the town had put up a notice on their webpage on Friday announcing this, uh, that they uh, had received, well, they're rounding it up to $400, which I guess, you know, they make it look a little bit more tempting to people. But what has, but within minutes, or I should say an hour or so, of putting up this flyer, they had received so much negative backlash that the town took it down. So in taking it down, a lot of people figured, okay, well, maybe they decided against it. And then lo and behold, today, they put it back up, and then they get people until tomorrow to vote on this. And <clears throat> what's wrong with the uh, 
with this little form that they have here is that it appears that they are deliberately trying to manipulate the vote. Instead of having a simple yes or no, they put in a further, if you vote yes, what will we do with the money? Like community draws of $850 gift cards, donations to both schools, donations to a local food bank or other. So they are trying to cloud over that the money is coming from GH2. And if they do accept that money, and since they're selling out our social license for $100, because once they accept this money, that automatically opens the door for GH2. And But why would that be? Because the town has little to no authority. With? With greenlighting this particular project. Well, they do. Well, the company has to get the social license. And so if the towns, such as Cape St. George, accept something like this, well, then, in fact, um, if, you know, if somebody wants to put the right spin on it, they can essentially say that the, the town in accepting this has actually given their social license uh, an agreement to the project. Well, I mean, but in practical terms, is that how it works? Because someone might receive receive the five hundred dollar check from the government, but never consider vote liberal, and ultimately no, no. this will be up to the province, right? Yeah, yeah, that would be up to the province. But then again, the uh, <clears throat> when when you look at voting liberal or PC or whatever, this in that case it would be different. Well, it would be different in some ways because in this one, when you look at it. Um, when you consider the amount of time and energy that the town has spent to promote this supposed $400 and then put out this vote. Now, if only 50 people go in and maybe 26 out of those 50 people vote yes in favor, are they going to accept that vote? Because they did not accept the vote when they had the poll uh, regarding uh, whether people favored the wind turbines or not. Why don't people want the project? It's like people are not against green energy by any way, shape, or form, right? The the big problem people have had out here is the fact that every level of government, from their councillors all the way up to provincial, and uh, people have even tried contacting federal to where they refer it back to provincial, where people are getting no information as to what is going on. Even from the company, you try and get a hold of the company, and all you hear are crickets. And as a matter of fact, uh, we had one of the members from the Environmental Transparency Committee send in a letter to one of the um, uh, contacts for, for the locals. And I can't remember her last name, but the first name was Laura. And all the concerns that were put in, the, the responses were essentially, in, in a way, go to hell. Uh, things like, well, your vote isn't valid because... Um, uh, ours is that was cr created by NQO because NQO used a scientific research and didn't go door to door to intimidate people, you know, and, and stuff like that. Um, and when the this uh, person, uh, Marilyn Rowe, when she had submitted these questions, one of the things she had a concern with was out in mainland where the <clears throat> construction is ongoing now for test turbines uh, for uh, to test the wind speeds and that to where the local brook, their water supply, has been totally indenuated with silt and other debris from the construction. And when they put in that comment about it, the company's comment, well, the rep's comment was, well, we know nothing about it, you know? And it was really uh, uh, 
answers that were just pushing away the, the concerns and not even trying to engage in any meaningful dialogue. So where does your information come from that helped formulate the question to the company? Well, a lot of the questions were simple. A lot of the questions are about the environment, the water tables and stuff like that. Now, as I said before, um, for, for hours, um, I spent 32 years in the military. It's in the signals field. Um, so I know everything about the RF spectrum from VLF all the way up to UHF and, and above. And that was part of my field for over 32 years. And also during that time, uh, we also used to conduct what we call open source research. And that's a gathering of information online that's available to everybody else out there. And that was a preparation of reports for various agencies, government agencies and whatnot. And we had to make sure that all that information was valid. And so there are many different ways of going through to verify information and where it's come from. And there is no way in heck that the military or any government organization that knows what they're doing would use a single source of information. Now, we're constantly being referred to saying, well, if you want truthful information, then refer to World GH2 page. And when you go there and you see their questions and answers, they're generic in general. Uh, prime example uh, of information that hasn't been verified. A few weeks ago, Saltwire put out an article uh, you know, concerning the uh, chiefs across Canada and their support of green energy and whatnot. And in that article, you will see a truth and myths, uh, sorry, uh, myths and facts section about wind turbine technology. And if you look at the source they took it from, that dates back to 2007 to 2010, all that information. And when you go to access it, none of it is available anymore. And, and, and even in the government, for anything that's like extremely sensitive, after 10 years, it's declared obsolete. And so all this information that they put up there is actually obsolete information. And the one part that was the most concerning is where they put up that, oh, well, According to statistics, buildings and wildcats kill more birds per capita than wind turbines. Well, interesting fact. However, it does not apply to the area of Port-a-Port. Actually, probably not for the majority of Newfoundland. Because if you look around Port-a-Port and the majority of Newfoundland, there are no significant buildings that would cause bird impacts. And any wildcats around could not survive the weather. And so when you look at it in itself, then the only threat to wildlife and to birds becomes the wind turbine project. And when you look at the, uh, the, white, the, the hills up in back of here, the barrens, that's been taken off the map. And so in taking that off the map, what they've done now is essentially reallocated all the land that has all the forests on it. And so when you, when you consider how many hundreds, maybe a couple thousand acres of forests are going to have to clear for this project. They're going to be tearing up the nesting areas for ground birds, for birds that are in the trees, uh, habitat for, for all the wildlife that's there, moose, uh, you know, mink. And then they're going to be putting up the turbines. So in theory, the building argument doesn't work. The cat argument doesn't work. And the only threat to wildlife out here and the water supply will become this wind turbine project. What's the impact on the water supply and water tables? Uh, 
not sure I Okay, well, if you look at the um, something as simple as a mine that they have in, in the Shave Scove area, Lower Cove, mine's been operating for some years. And there are two brooks that run through Shiva Scove. Uh, one, as a result of the operations over the years, has essentially dried up. And when you have heavy rain, it becomes a raging torrent, and then within a day or so, it's down to nothing again. It's just dry. The second brook is probably at about half the capacity it used to be. And so when you look at the effects, something as you know, small in size when you think about it, as a mine compared to the amount of topsoil and trees and, and other vegetation that will be uprooted in support of this project, um, that has a lot of people concerned. Wouldn't that be more because, a flooding issue versus water table issue? Well, no. Uh, it, would be, it would be both because flooding will occur when there's nothing there to absorb the water. Now, if you don't have the vegetation, such as trees, grasses, brush, and whatnot, they hold water, and over time, allows the water to latch down right into the soil, and the soil will absorb this water, send it down to the limestone, and that's how it will go down. But if you strip that all away, you have nothing there to absorb the water and control uh, how it's dissipated throughout the region, right? Uh, last one before I go, because I'm extremely late for the break, but so be it, is... What do you say to the folks where this is an industry in its infancy and the investment in the region and the jobs created and to be in on the, the, the ground floor with something that is going to be something? Uh, I think green hydrogen is a interesting play. It's going to be part of the, uh, the quote-unquote energy transition. There is concerns with uh, power loss and the ultimate cost of the end consumer. But what do you say to folks who would like to see that type of investment? I mean, billion dollar, multi-billion dollar project. There are going to be jobs and training and opportunities afforded. So what do you say to those folks who that's their angle? Um, well, it has to be more than just about jobs. Like, if you put, they're going to be putting everything out here. Yes, okay, there would be jobs initially, some contractor jobs and, and whatnot. But essentially, once the windmills are put up in Port of Port, everything's going to be done in Stephenville, right? So the way a lot of people are looking at it, like if you can take into consideration, um, there's over 4,000 people on the peninsula. We do all our commerce in Stephenville. And not only just Port of Port, it's around the bay. We all do our commerce in Stephenville. So we're quite a contributor to the local economy in Stephenville. And... A lot of people are focusing just on the job aspect of it. We're looking at the devastation it's going to cause. Because Port-a-Port is three times smaller than the city of St. John's, okay, for area. And so if you were to – someone was to come in and say, we want you to give up half of St. John's so we can do this project, I'm sure the reaction would be quite a bit different. You know, uh, we're not against green energy. We're about having it done responsibly. Right now, everything okay. is being pushed through. And one other point is that, you know, we have Muskrat Falls, and we've seen the fiasco that's, that's caused. And the company has even said during times, uh, if the wind is too high or too low, they would have to actually tap into the electrical grid to get the electricity they need to create hydrogen. Well, Muskrat Falls is already a green initiative, right? It's renewable energy. So why can the company not make a contract with, uh, with the government for that electricity because the government's been running around looking for uh, consumers for this electricity. And I think this company would be an ideal uh, candidate 
for that money. Because but, if they're going to spend billions on, on windmills, they could spend that on electricity. Yeah, but, but we're not the consumer for World Energy's end product. No, so it's kind of two different things. No, no, well, not really. When you consider that well, it is, but... if they produce their own energy, if they're producing their own electricity by windmills, and then all uh, the Newfoundland is probably getting from it is some royalties over time, if they're actually using the energy from Muskrat Falls, well, then they're paying for that energy. They're paying for the electricity up front. Yes, their end product will be sold, but then at least the, the people and the government of Newfoundland will be getting some direct revenue from that. Well, we can't, we can't get answers to the economic upside beyond jobs uh, at this moment in time. Duran, I have to get off to the break and to the news, but I appreciate you making time for the program this morning. Okay, no problem. Okay, Thanks. take good care. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. Uh, today's a good day to get on the show. Topic up to you. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. And welcome back to the program. Just in reference to our conversation with Harris Center Director Rob Greenwood regarding the Vital Science Report and some of the issues broached by their, their panelists and their participants, contributors. So the issue surrounding mining opportunities, I, I don't know how someone heard anybody say that it was green because it's not, and no, everybody knows that there comes an environmental cost with every type of, well, most every type of industry and commercial application. Regarding mining, and the person went down to say, you know, I keep pushing electric vehicles, that's not it at all. What we're talking about is that there's going to be a demand for critical minerals that's already ongoing and will increase in the future. For a variety of things, yes, including electric vehicle battery, and yes, including your laptop battery and your cell phone battery and the like. So it doesn't matter if you ever want one. The fact of the matter is these minerals will be in demand, and if we are well positioned in this country, and specifically in this province, to get in on the action, why wouldn't we? So then the conversation went on to the full, the complete of the supply chain, as opposed to, like what we've seen, and the federal government's actually uh, demanded, requested by legislation that China divest its equity stake in three critical mineral companies in that are operating in this pro in this country. Pardon me, is that if we have all the minerals, the next big opportunity is to as as opposed to simply uh, mine the material, mine the minerals, send them elsewhere. Someone makes the battery and or complete secondary processing or tertiary processing or the final product and then the distribution. We just don't do a good job in this country on that front. So that's why the question was posed, not that you should buy an electric vehicle. You do whatever you see fit with your hard-earned money. I'm going to consider one my next go-around, basically because of the cost of operations. Because the people I know who have one, they're kind of laughing all the way to the bank when they see what it costs for me to operate mine. So, yes, if we have the minerals, why wouldn't we do more with them as opposed to ship them out? The country that's ruling the roost in the end production of all these critical minerals and to whatever end product is China. Yet they actually have, they mine very little of it in their own country. They simply import it and then they create the jobs to make a battery for whatever it is. My cell phone, for instance. So just makes sense to me that we get in on the action and do more to keep those opportunities here. Just imagine if we had a complete supply chain issue that was all domestic. 
as opposed to send it to wherever and then buy it back from them. So that's why the question was posed the way it was. And also, again, hopefully for the final time, I don't care if you ever buy an electric vehicle. I have no skin in that game. The conversation is that the demand for those types of products is growing. And we have opportunities here that are absolutely endless and could very well be much bigger than anything we've enjoyed from the oil industry, of which we've enjoyed a lot. And the royalties have been important in this province. Hibernia alone has created $15 billion in wealth for governments, both federally and provincially, over its lifespan. Beta Nord has the opportunity to be just as big as Hibernia. You know, remember back to when it was first sanctioned, and now we're 25 years into oil production at Hibernia. The thought it would last 25 years. Now we're well past, pardon me, thought, thought it would last about 15, 20 years. Now here we are at 25, with the potential for another couple of decades at Hibernia. So uh, well over a billion barrels in that oil-producing field, which is one of four, of course, in the province, and now with the potential for Beta Nord to come on. The folks at Equinor have long said that their break-even number for profitability out there is $35 a barrel. Seems highly unlikely we ever get back to the lows of $35 a barrel for that product. So a business sanction decision, I guess, is in the offing, maybe in the next couple of years. I know there's many people listening to the program this morning that are completely opposed to it. Fair enough. People who are worried about doing even the smallest bit to uh, deal with what are very real contributions to climate change with emissions and man's, uh, man's role therein. So that's why we talk about some of those things with Rob and others. And, of course, the same people get really upset if you talk about anything regarding climate change. You know, municipalities, even if you just see what's happened with the wildfires, it doesn't, ma doesn't mean that climate change is the only reason why a storm happened. What it means is that, for instance, with Fiona, the warming of the sea contributes greatly to how intense the storms are when they make landfall. So even if the climate change mitigation approach and the investment required and the in-house expertise that may not be in place, even if it's as fundamental as how and where we build a road, how and where we build a breakwater, how and where we build a home. So it doesn't mean you have to be an alarmist about anything. It just means that the reality is, if we've seen and experienced what we saw in Port of Basque and the other communities on the southwest coast, there's got to be some attention given to it. Why wouldn't we? You know, if you just do the same things we've been doing and come up with devastating outcomes like we saw, some 100 homes in that one community are uninhabitable. So avoiding that seems to make a bit of sense to me. And regarding Duran's call uh, and World Energy GH2 and the environmental sensitivities and concerns folks at Port of Port have, fair enough. You know, I don't know how much influence the town of Stephenville is going to have in the eventual yay or nay to this potential project. It all lies with the provincial government, as far as I understand. And if I'm missing something, you can help me understand and fill in the blanks. You know, it's, I think it's very much akin to some of the conversations that were had, uh, had initially regarding Muskrat Falls. Because what your concern was had a lot to do with where you lived. So if you're living in and around the Grand River, the Churchill River, their ultimate concerns would be vastly different than many people, for instance, living on the Northeast Avalon. People in this area, not to generalize, not everyone falls into this category neatly, but many people here would simply have been worried about what it means to their hydroelectric bill. Versus if you were harvesting country foods and living on and around the river itself, your concerns very likely were much more on the environmental side. 
So I guess the same thing and the same thought process can be applied to wind energy and green hydrogen and wind turbines. If you're living around where they're going to be installed, your, your concern would be different than people who are not living in the region. So Duran makes some interesting points. Will this be an industry that sees a lot of investment and job creation and tax base expansion and training opportunities and maybe the hub of a center of excellence in this province? How does that get weighed out by the province as they absolutely have to listen to people in the area? Of course they do. And how they factor that into their eventual decision? Well, I guess we'll find out when the eventual decision is made. But the fact that people think that this has already been greenlit conceptually as opposed to officially, you know where that thought comes from. And for folks in the region, whether it be Duran or anybody else, you know, questions regarding the unknowns absolutely have to be broached before we hear a final decision because we don't really know what goes on midstream inside an environmental process, the work that the company does, who does the work on behalf of the company, their submissions to the province, the review, they go back to the company with issues of concern that need to be addressed or rectified or whatever the appropriate word is. When you don't know what's happening, then, of course, any opposition that you had, period, will be intensified when you don't get answers to what may be absolutely fundamental questions. So if you're on side and you're fully opposed to the project and or want to discuss the potential upsides, we can do it. There's one fellow who's absolutely, completely, 100% in on the hydrogen play. Pr probably doesn't really like it when we ask questions like this, but I think we have to ask him anyway, is we have to understand what's really in it for us. Because far too often, whether you hear from Bob or others, that we've left a lot on the table when it comes to some of these big plays, big projects, big dollars that have been invested, the outcome for the general coffers at the provincial government, of course we have to consider that. And why wouldn't we consider that? We know what's in it for World Energy GH2, sort of. We know what's in it for the end uh, customer, which at this moment in time are Germans. So there's going to be benefits spread around. I think many of us would like to know what benefits will be spread around to people who live all around the province, the island and into Labrador. You want to take it on? We can do it. Let's check in on the Twitter feed where VOCM Open Line follow us there. Oh, someone uh, wanted me to mention this. So we had Lisa Brown, one of the vice presidents at Memorial University, on the show last week on Tuesday. We talked about Giving Tuesday. And then there was the potential to revisit a decision regarding removing the ode to Newfoundland to be sung at the convocation ceremonies. We don't know what the outcome will be, but there was a lot of pushback. And then over this past weekend, when I think it was used to be called the President's Report, now it's a community update. So I can't remember the exact title they applied to it. But it was basically student protesters regarding tuition hikes in particular. They were removed. They were just told they had to leave. So whether it be any sort of interruption, but of course the ability to be heard and to be present is important especially when we talk about institutions of higher learning like Memorial University. So I wasn't there. I don't know everything that went on. But it does come across that there's been a few examples piling up of some heavy-handedness regarding dissension at Memorial University. And it shouldn't be that way. If you want to pick up on that, you can do it right after this. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. 
Welcome back to the program. Well, a little traffic update. If you were thinking that your upcoming travel is going to take you on the Outer Ring Road heading west, looks like the traffic is backed up at least as far as Thorburn Road, so says one of our listeners here this morning. So avoid heading west on the Outer Ring Road for now while they see how they can clean that up. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Earl. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Uh, I called to express my concerns on how much food we throw away every day in the garbage. And I'm talking about buying stuff like bread. A loaf of bread will do me, it goes bad after I, you know, I don't eat a loaf. I'm all by myself, and I uh, take about two slices out of that pack. And by the time I go around to get the third slice, it's not fit to eat. Same thing with hot dog buns, hamburger buns, uh uh, vegetables, so you, you know, you got to buy two pounds of carrots, you got to buy uh, a dozen eggs, and you, if you could buy a half a dozen eggs and a half a cabbage, more than plenty. But this stuff just gets thrown out not only by me, but I suspect by an awful lot of people all the time. And it seems like an awful waste of food, for one thing, and I just don't understand why we can't buy smaller amounts, smaller packaging, why stores don't offer it maybe some places like a farmer's get. market for instance you can go over to the st john's farmer's market and buy just a couple of carrots for instance and stuff like that but fair point i read about food waste all the time because i'm pretty focused in on food these days about 20 percent of all the food produced in canada ends up being thrown away 20 yes. percent there's something in the neighborhood of 2.3 million tons of household food waste that's thrown away every year. So the food waste is extraordinary. And when we talk about how much it all costs, to know that that much of it is being thrown away is madness. Now, some of us get caught up in the expiry date or the best before date. When it doesn't mean it's gone bad, it just means it's not as great as, as it was when it was brand new. But I like your point about the size of the portions that you're forced to buy. Curiously, someone sent me a note there one day last week saying you should be able to buy six eggs. That and that alone. They made no reference to any other product in the grocery store, but they said you should be able to buy six eggs, and I think they're right. Yes, well, that's one of the things I find, like eggs, bread, uh, buns, uh, stuff like that. It's just, I mean, I only get to use, I don't use 10% of what I buy because by the time I go to, to get it, it's not really fresh enough and not fit to eat and all dried out and what have you, and eggs, well, dozen eggs do me four or five weeks, and that's not going to last that long, you know, it's not going to be fit to eat. So if I could buy a half a dozen eggs, a half a cabbage, and a, a four-pack of buns, and a four-pack of buns, instead of eating a 12-pack of buns, all that kind of crap, which is what you're forced to take, there would only be half as much of the wastage. It wouldn't even be half. And I suspect that I am not the only one. I suspect there's an awful lot of individuals with small families that just don't go through that stuff, you know. Do you ever freeze any of the buns? The garbage. Do you freeze uh, any of the buns or the bread or anything? Well, I do, but I find by the time I tie them all out, they're not fit to eat anyway because I never know when I want one for sure. I, I, I do, but I find out by the time I go looking for one to, to heat that is that already gone and and, and waterlogged and sogged and what have you, you know. <laughs> yeah, the way that we've tried to deal with that in our house is to, now some things you cannot use a, uh, uh, how's I going to call it out, 
when you suck the air out of the bag to put it in the freezer, what is that called again? Yeah. Yeah, vacuum, vacuum sealer. Seal. You can't use yeah. it, like, for instance, on bread necessarily because, of course, all you do is no, just scorch the bread. Yeah. But I use it for all kinds of other stuff. Like, if I see chicken or something on sale now, I'll buy enough where I'm going to spend a bit of the afternoon uh, vacuum sealing it. Guarantee you that. Yeah. That's probably the best way to go about that. But I just don't understand why we, as a group of people... With so much waste, these boy, I'm forced to buy 12 hot dog buns and a loaf of bread that I only want a half a loaf of bread for, you know, or a quarter of a loaf of bread, a bun of bread or something that I can't go and buy it. I can't get it. I mean, I don't have a farmer's market next to me anywhere uh, that I can go and do that. Uh, I live on the West Coast, and this isn't this not available to me. It's not available in any dominions or 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 Walmarts or anywhere. You just can't get it. You just can't not find uh, some portion that's applicable to one or two individuals eating uh, a slice of bread a day or once a hot dog, you know, put two hot dogs on. They might never hot dog for another week. And, I mean, the stuff is just not fit. And if you've got to freeze it, I'm tired every time you're looking for it. It's just too much of a hassle for for to do. I know you can do it. You can buy two loaves of bread and put one in the freezer or something, but but it's still throwing away the food. Yeah, and I mean, food waste is not great at the very best of times, but when we talk about the cost associated with buying anything at all in the grocery store these days, then That's it right. becomes even more frustrating. It's not just about the unnecessary waste of food. It's the no, amount of money now associated with it I, as well. I, I agree with you 100%, and I just don't understand why why stores and that wouldn't take, even if it costs a little more for the package, uh, uh, half of a cabbage and uh, a six roll of buns in a in a bag or something, you know, I wouldn't mind paying the extra money. But I hate to see that every day, my gar- every time garbage comes around, it's filled up with a loaf of bread and a loaf of buns and some eggs and what have you, just throwing it out, throwing it out, throwing it out. Now, I don't know what else you can do with it, only throw it out. <laughs> I appreciate this. It's an interesting topic. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. All right. Thank you. I appreciate your time, Earl. Thanks. You have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Food waste numbers, and that's household waste. When I said that, the amount of food being thrown out, 2.3 million tons of household food waste thrown away annually. And like many are apt to do, they translate that to what it took to produce that, that foods. It's the equivalent of almost 7 million tons of CO2, which is about a couple of million cars on the road, and we throw it in the garbage. Some of that is absolutely because of what has been a food industry trick, and that's the best before dates. You know, for the longest while, I was completely all in on the, on the best before date. If I got to it, that's it. Out it goes. When, in fact, it doesn't mean that you can't consume it. Now, people may indeed be a little bit more cautious with best before dates on things like dairy products. Fair enough. Because once something smells a bit off to me, milk included, then I'm not interested in it. But there's so many other products that we all buy and we all consume that the best before date does not mean it's no good anymore. It might not be as fresh or as nutritious, but it's not going to make you sick. And we just go, go with it because the industry has very carefully made, a, they don't say the quiet part out loud here, best before is not expiring. So some of that absolutely contributes to the amount of food waste. And then there are some formalized arrangements between the big retailer, whether it be uh, major league grocery chains and or the big box stores. It's got to be critically important 
and I know they'll, you know, maybe put things on three for the price of two or maybe a few deals or specials to try to get rid of some product. But at the end of it, we really can't have the big retailers throwing much away either. Now, we don't want to insinuate that it's okay, it's fine and dandy to give a food bank something that's expired or past its best before or might make you ill. No one's suggesting that at all. But we know absolutely, without or with complete certainty, that some of the food that goes in the garbage is absolutely perfectly fine to eat. So we see the numbers of people going to the food banks. We see the prices that we're all paying at the grocery store. We talked this morning about the fact that the forecasted rise in the price of groceries is going to be very similar to what we experienced this year. And so some of these folks, whether it be Sylvain Charlebois or others, you know, he was taken to the woodshed because I had him on the show uh, talking about the forecasted price of few food. And when they had it at about, across the board, around 7%, and immediately he, me, and probably everyone else had an interview with Dr. Charlebois, were told that we're just making people panic unnecessarily. Because I think a fair point is made is that what can anyone do to prepare for a hike in the price of groceries? Well, some people might want to consider, you know, maybe change a diet. Some people might want to consider maybe growing some of their own food, being part of the homesteading network, you know, the old barter system, anything to spare us, you know, what it's looking like for a family for an increase, well in excess of $1,000 uh, next year. So when he said 7% leading into 2022 and people were really quite cross, the end result, food inflation is over 10%. So he wasn't, he wasn't off. In fact, he, they kind of lowballed us. Now, what the impact is going to be in the coming years remains to be seen, but the food insecurity is a public health crisis. It's not just a crisis to our bank accounts. It's a public health crisis, and we don't mobilize like we do when other crises come to bear. And with what we see, food banks and food insecurity and everything you consider in the food envelope, it's a problem that needs to be near the top of every level of government's list because all level of governments have something they can and should be doing about it. Out of the corner of my eye, I just saw an email fly in looking for information from you, the shopper, especially those who are the caregivers or parents of uh, young children. Where did you find your last batch of, whether it be children's acetaminophen or ibuprofen products? Because people are scrambling, and we had spoken to the story that there's a surge of children presenting at the Janeway with respiratory illnesses, some of that may indeed be because they couldn't get any medication to help control the symptoms. So if you are finding those products, let us know where you found them. All right, good show. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonce King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.